This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Lee in Washington, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hey, Alex Jones. I've been waiting a long time to talk to you. Anyways, I just wanted to say, um, I remember back in the day, uh, Y2K, the Bill Cooper incident, and you smoking Louis Major Rogan. Now you lost your kids, and I'm so happy about that, dude. If I ever seen you in real life, I would smack the shit out of you. I uh, would we'll delay that because we can't have cussing. I've never taken DMT. The freedom of speech is being taken away. vibrations first time listeners turn on tune in and drop out this is a different kind of show a place where you don't feel so alone let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe i do admire you for your curiosity live and direct right now on the tune in radio app search end of days and you'll find the 24 7 network go to michaeldeacon.com for your preferred choice of platform to hear the podcast rendition of this show. Tonight, my guest is James Fetzer. He has taught at the University of Kentucky, Virginia, and Florida. He was most recently McKnight University professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Minnesota Duluth. Fetzer has published over 20 books and more than 100 articles and reviews in the philosophy of science and on the theoretical foundations of computer science, artificial intelligence, and cognitive science. Once again, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again on a night like this. Good morning and good evening. Welcome back to another dose of the Michael Deacon program. I am feeling illuminated once again under pale moonlight. Always an honor and pleasure to be here. Thank you to those listening here in America and those who listen outside of America. Thank you for your great support. Great to see so many of you here tonight. I'll be discussing current events, Sandy Hook, 
and the JFK assassination, Seth Rich, plus a lot more. Keep in mind, I do appreciate all the listeners out there. That means you listening. I have always been 100% transparent with you here on this program. Unlike many other show hosts out there who aren't exactly that honest with its own audience, you know who you are. Let's bring on our guest. James, is that you? It is. It is. It is. I am here. Oh, fantastic. I'm so glad you could be here. My great pleasure. Yes, always an honor and pleasure to have you here on the program. You have been here before, and it was amazing the first time, and I hope we can do it again. I'm glad to return. Today's been a chaotic day for me, so I'm just glad to be settling down. My goodness. What, What happened? Oh, no, no, no. It's just that my, my granddaughter was in a performance downtown at this huge uh, opera house. It's called the the Overture. And, you know, it was just a three-hour production with 431 kids doing must have been 50 different performances. And then we were uh, babysitting the older or grandson while she was doing the second performance. It's just been one of those days where things have been very busy. I see, Yes. Things are quite hectic nowadays. So, James, the term conspiracy theory was invented by the CIA in order to uh, prevent disbelief of official government stories. Now, James, they try to label me and you as conspiracy theorists all of a sudden. But these aren't conspiracies. That's right. I'm willing to take the bull by the horns. I actually posted on YouTube a piece entitled, why I, Jim Fetzer, am a conspiracy theorist, explaining how the CIA had laid it out to try to shift the burden of proof onto the critics of the Warren Commission, as though in order to be able to fault the work of the commission by, for example, pointing out that the weapon that the alleged assassin was supposed to have used this man, Lucar Carcano, was an absurd choice actually known as the humanitarian rifle in World War II for never harming anyone on purpose, that the backyard photographs, which one of which was put on the cover of Life with him holding this this rifle, a pistol belt, and a revolver with which he is alleged to have shot uh, a police officer by the name of J.D. Tippett, uh, is, is, is faked. It's, uh, he, even Lee himself told Will Fritz, the homicide detective investigating the case, that that was his face pasted on someone else's body that he had some experience with the photography, be able to prove it. Well, of course, he didn't live long enough to do that, but we have. It turns out that there's the chin uh, on the backyard photographs is the wrong chin. It's a block chin, not Oswald's more tapered, narrow chin. There's an insert line between the chin and the lower lip. There are four or five of these. They all have exactly the same face, exactly the same expression, exactly the same nose shadow, which is absurd with a violating the laws of optics and photography. Uh, Also, the fingertips on his right hand are cut off, and he's holding two communist newspapers, which had, incidentally, the militant and the worker, which had antithetical philosophy, so that if an expert on communism explained to me that if, if, if those supporting the various ran into the other, they'd have fistfights and try to kill one another. But the fact is that Jack White, who was a legendary photo and film analyst, realized they created an internal yardstick that you could use to measure the height of the individual in the photograph. And when you do that using the measurements of the newspapers, he turns out to be too short, only about five foot six, whereas Lee was around five ten. 
which means either they use someone who is too short or more likely they when they fake the photographs, they put in the newspapers too large, which threw off the measurements. Jim Mars and I actually co-authored an article about framing the Patsy, the case of Lee Harvey Oswald, right. mm-hmm. in which we, we, we agreed that, in fact, the individual who's standing in for him, who has a blocked chin, who's the right height, weight, build, and so forth, actually is a Dallas policeman who uh, was on the grassy knoll at the time of the uh, shooting, the assassination, uh, by the name of Roscoe White, where the definitive tell is the fact that the man in the photograph has this funny bump on his right wrist, and Roscoe White had exactly the same funny bump on his right wrist. But yes. the point is that there's all this evidence showing that the Warren Commission was wrong, so in order to fend it off and try to make it look as though unless you could prove every every detail, explain exactly what had happened with no omissions, you ought not to be taken seriously. They introduced the phrase conspiracy theorist, which, of course, has has gained a, gained a lot of traction and been very useful as a, just a single phrase to try to debunk people regardless Correct. of the strength of their evidence. Right. That's, that's a phrase, like I said, and as you know, coined by the CIA, uh, stigma rather. It's quite repulsive. And, of course, we're talking about the JFK assassination back in 1963. And, of course, Lee Oswald was in the doorway of the book depository when the motorcade passed by. Lee, that's very, yeah, that's yes. right. You're right on top of it. In fact, uh, we had a memorial event. Uh, uh, Lorian Fenton organized a JFK birthday event, which coincided with Memorial Day. And there were 10 of us who spoke, and I talked about the alteration of the Zapruder film yes. and gave the broader context with a, regard to the shooters. And Larry Rivera, who followed me, laid out all the evidence we have that this man in the doorway who who was striking from the beginning because he had the same height, weight, build, shirt, undershirt as Lee Oswald when he was arrested, which, by the way, is why they had him take off his outer shirt and have him photographed only in his T-shirt for his mugshot so the comparison wouldn't be emphasized, had been noticed already by Harold Weisberg, one of the earliest students of the assassination in the second of his whitewash series, photographic whitewash, published in 1966. In the last few pages, he talked about the darkest secrets of the Warren Commission was concealing that Lee was in the doorway, and where even Jim Garrison, who, of course, was... uh, eternalized by Oliver Stone in his magnificent film JFK, also believed that Lee was in the doorway. So we've been able to nail it down, but what Larry has done is using a new technology. He's an IT specialist. He created GIFs feeding in the features of the Lee Oswald into the, the face of the man in the doorway and the features of Billy Lovelady, who's the only alternative, the government claims that the man, the man we're talking about was, in fact, Billy Lovelady. Interestingly, he actually was in the doorway, but to the left of the doorman, as he's known, with his hands up raised to protect him for the, from the sun where his face has been blacked out. So he's referred to by students of this as, as Black Hole Man. But when he, he himself said he thought it was odd they'd be confused because he was two to three inches shorter, 15 to 20 pounds heavier. That's correct, yes. And, and was wearing a, a short sleeve red and white vertically striped shirt, by the way, which he showed to the FBI on the 29th of February. Same shirt, 19, yes. 1964. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so Larry fed him in, and it's an exact match for Lee with, with, when you put Billy in the doorman's image. Uh, the chin's wrong. The ear's wrong. The nose is wrong. It, 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 the eyebrows are wrong. It, it is Lee. I mean, we've con- confirmed this beyond any doubt. And the point you're making is impeccable because given Lee was actually in the doorway, he obviously not only cannot have been the lone demented gunman, he, he wasn't, cannot have yeah. even been one of the shooters. He wasn't the actual shooter. And this is one of the most important moments in our nation's history. That was, in my opinion, the moment that the American public received a proverbial reality check. Wouldn't you say so, Jim? Oh, well, what happened was, uh, you know, a a bona fide coup was taking place right before our very eyes where Lyndon Johnson had forced himself on the ticket back in 1960 in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, But Bobby, uh, uh, Jack had already invited Stuart Symington of Missouri to be his running mate. Um, LBJ wasn't on even their long list, much less or short, but Bobby went by the Johnson suite to make a pro forma offer, which he expected Lyndon to decline, and was astonished when he jumped on it and and threatened to expose that JFK suffered from Addison's disease, wasn't expected to live a long, healthy life, that he'd had dalliances with beautiful women, some of whom were spies for East Germany using information provided to him by J. Edgar Hoover, and further, that if he were not on the ticket, then any legislative proposal sent down by the White House would be dead on arrival because in his position as the powerful Senate majority leader, he'd, he'd, he'd block them. Uh, when when uh, one of the wealthy supporters of Lyndon heard the news, he burst into the Johnson suite cursing and swearing that now LBJ was going to help JFK become elected. Bobby Baker took him into a bedroom and explained what they had in mind. He came out all smiles and said he thought that was an excellent plan. Bobby would later announce publicly that JFK would not live out his term and that he would die a violent death, where it turns out Lyndon sent his chief administrative assistant, Cliff Carter, down to Dallas to make sure all the arrangements were in place for the assassination. It's quite quite astonishing. So many key players involved in this. The mafia wanted him out. Lyndon also in on it. And I believe, um, who else was in on this? Was was uh, George Walker Bush also in this? Well, he, he was in a very hands-on role because he actually was a supervisor of a JFK hit team. Let me just mention for background, by the way, that since that event, I have done a uh, where I had 50, 50 minutes, uh, as I recall. Uh, I, I have done a two-hour on uh, JFK. You can find it at the Gary King YouTube channel, the new JFK show number 152, JFK Who, How, and Why, 2017, that covers everything I'm going to sketch right now. Nice. But, yeah, to understand, to get the big picture on JFK, you want to draw a distinction between the sponsors, the individuals and groups who wanted him out, most of whom, for policy reasons, preferred Lyndon Johnson, except for the anti-Castro Cubans who simply wanted revenge. The facilitators, those who made it happen, who were Lyndon Johnson and J. Edgar Hoover. And then the mechanics, the shooters, their supervisors and coordinators, where I've identified six of them, and there may well have been a seventh. One was a, a deputy, a Dallas deputy sheriff by the name of Harry Weatherford, who was firing from the top of the county records building using a larger caliber, a 30-06 to impact, 
implant a Mandiker Carcano bullet in the back of JFK. It actually hit him about five and a half inches below the collar to the right of the spinal column, went in about as far as the second knuckle on your little finger with no point of exit. The second hit on JFK was by a, a shooter inside the triple underpass, an Air Force expert by the name of Jack Lawrence, who'd gone to work for the automobile dealership that just a few days before that provided the vehicles for the motorcade, which, unlike any other presidential motorcade in history, was not uniform black Cadillacs, but cars of different makes, models, and colors, so the conspirators could know exactly where everyone was. He fired his shot through the windshield, which hit JFK in the throat, captured in a very famous photograph by AP photographer James Ike Alchins, which actually is the photograph where he also captured Lee in the doorway in a, in a very small segment that has been blown up for study that's been the object of our research. Right. Then, then uh, in addition... Jack, several shots were fired that missed, including one from the grassy knoll by the very same Roscoe White, a Dallas police officer who had ties to the CIA. Apparently, he would have hit Jackie, but he had the easiest shot, so he pulled it, and the bullet wound up in the grass opposite where a lieutenant picked it up. <clears throat> there was an anti-Castro Cuban in the yes. Dal Escudero. Yes, Master mm -hmm. Tony Escudero, who was firing... Fired three shots with a Mandlicker Carcano, which were the only unsilent shots fired during the assassination. Oh, who was in fact supervised by George Herbert Walker Bush. Believe it or not, he was arrested coming out of the building. Outrageous. Uh, yeah, taken downtown in question. He identified himself as an independent Houston oil man. One of the uh, other dep deputy sheriffs actually was involved in the arrest and knew it, it had taken place which is rather fascinating stuff. Uh, but the fact is he was supervising this anti-Castro Cuban, who, 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 two of whose shots missed, one of which hit after the driver, William Greer, pulled the limousine to the left uh, uh, and to a halt to make sure JFK would be killed. One of his shots missed and hit a distant curbing and injured a bystander by the name of James Tagg. Another missed and hit the chrome strip over the windshield, uh, creating a dent. But the third hit Jack in the back of the head after William Greer pulled the limo to a halt. He slumped forward. Jackie eased him back up and was looking him right in the face when he was hit in the right temple by a frangible or exploding bullet that created shockwaves that blew his brain out of his already weakened cranium to the left rear with such force that when they hit Officer Bobby Hargis riding there, initially thought he himself had been shot. That appears to have been fired by Frank Sturgis, who was a CIA mob guy. Uh, other shots were fired from the book depository, but from the opposite side than Oswald's alleged location, from which no shots were fired, by uh, Malcolm Mac Wallace, who was Lyndon Johnson's personal hitman who murdered a dozen people for Lyndon, including one of his own sisters, firing at John Conley in the mistaken belief that it was Ralph Yarborough, who was a liberal Texas senator that Lyndon hated, he had a huge argument with Jack that morning trying to get Conley out and Yarborough in. Did Jack resolve by, on the basis that the chief executive of the state should ride with the chief executive of the United States? And it was too late to get word out so that you see photographs on this festive occasion when John Conley is looking very grim because he knows he's going to be in the line of fire. He was hit anywhere from one to three different times. He had a shot in the back. He had a damage to his right wrist. He had a bullet in his left thigh. Uh, 
In fact, it's very, very interesting that the, the day of the assassination, two wounds were widely broadcast on radio and television. Those were a shot to the throat that had passed through the windshield, a small, clean puncture wound, and a, bl a blood at the back of the head caused by a shot that entered the right temple. Those were the two shots that were widely broadcast on, on radio and television that day. Such that uh, uh, Bob Livingston, M.D., who was a scientific director for the National Institutes of two of the National Institutes of Health for neurological diseases and for blindness, actually called across his the, the, the National Institutes of Health or across the street from the Bethesda Naval Hospital. So he called across the street to speak to the physician who would be responsible for the autopsy, who turned out to be Commander James Humes and was able to speak with him and told him how he'd heard a description of this wound on the radio. And because of his experience with, uh, with uh, as an expert on wounds from supervising an emergency medical hospital during the Battle of Okinawa for injured Okinawans and Japanese prisoners of war, he explained to Humes that the neck, therefore, needed to be dissected very carefully and, irony of ironies, if there was evidence of any shots from behind, then they would knew there, know there were multiple shooters and therefore a conspiracy when the FBI cut him off. He thought that was very, very odd. Uh, Humes would call him back later in the evening to ask him what the throat wound would have looked like if it had been an exit instead of an entry. And Bob described it, which Humes apparently used to alter the wound to make it look more like something that would be an exit instead of an entry wound, even right. though mm -hmm. Malcolm Perry had three times during the Parkland press conference after JFK had been declared dead, had explained to the reporters assembled that it was an entry wound, that the bullet was coming at him. But it was a transcript that was never provided to the Warren Commission or its staff. Yes, very interesting stuff. And I do want to take a moment to pause here for a moment just to ask you about this. There was an article maybe a month ago about the National Archives is set to release the last remaining top secret files about, about JFK. And President Trump has the ability to block the release of any or all of these documents. There are 3,600 files, mostly from the FBI and the CIA. Um, do you think Trump is actually going to release this? Well, he'd be an idiot to block it. I mean, it would, like, it, it, it would just be damning of him. I mean, it, it's interesting that on 9-11, Trump was the first uh, prominent personality to speak out and say the official something was wrong with the official account. He explained that he had the same engineers and architects working for him that had designed the World Trade Center. Right. And that planes couldn't have done it. Planes couldn't have entered the building. Uh, you know, planes couldn't have, uh, the fires couldn't have brought the buildings down. He said on that occasion that there must have been other factors involved, including bombs, meaning explosives in the building. Now, you know, Bill Clinton went into office saying he wanted to know two things, who who killed JFK and, and about extraterrestrial visitations, mm -hmm. and later would explain that he was denied access to both. What's interesting about this situation with Trump is that in the wake of the resurgence of interest generated by Oliver Stone's film uh, in 1991-92, in uh, Congress passed. Uh, JFK Records Act that created a five civilian panel board and with the authority to declassify documents and records from all the agencies where only the president could override it. George Herbert Walker Bush, who was president at the time, of course, fought it 
fiercely. I mean, you know, for the, for the obvious reasons, and I'll, I'll get back, by the way, to the sponsors to help to tie all that together and finish discussing about mm-hmm. the supervisors because I didn't get to the key guy who oh, appears yes. to position the shooters and determine the sequence of shots. Yes. It was Edward Lansdale, a U.S. Air Force general responsible for assassinations all over the world. But the the fact is that uh, George Herbert Walker Bush obviously would have a keen interest in this information not coming out. Uh, it meant there was a delay of 18 months until the Bill Clinton administration came in and became organized. But nevertheless, although all the agencies were thereby warned and given a, a buffer, time to clean up their records and files, 60,000 records were released by the Assassination Records Review Board, millions of pages. So what you're talking about now are documents and records that ought to have already been released under the law, where we knew, for example, that the CIA had withheld a a file on a very key player, a guy by the name of George Joannidis, who was a PSYOP expert for the CIA and appears to have been involved both in JFK and in, in Bobby's assassination as well. So I, I don't think that Donald will block it. I think it would be a very stupid thing to do. He's, uh, he's, he, I don't recall that he made any specific promises related to, to JFK or 9-11. Yeah. But a lot mm-hmm. of us have believed that he would, in fact, you know, follow through and make make records and documents accessible that we've been denied in the past because of the participation, for example. I mean, 9-11 was brought to us by the Bush-Cheney administration. The neocons in the Project for the New American Century who were brought into the Department of Defense, most of whom were dual U.S.-Israeli citizens, the CIA and the Mossad. So Bush and Cheney obviously didn't want this information out. I think Trump would be well advised, however, not to run any interference. I mean, it would certainly bring a chorus of, of condemnation from many different sides. Yes, and George H.W. Bush signed it into law back in 92. So for sure, he did not he did not want any of these things to ever see the light of day. Uh, well, no, see, Bush refused. He, he, he refused to it, – it passed over his adamant opposition. To, to create this five-person panel. But Bush was actually photographed in Dealey Plaza after his arrest. I may have been the first person to identify him in a photograph in Jesse Curry's JFK assassination file, which was a paperback book he, he published while the head of security for 7-Eleven stores, uh, uh, an office he assumed after he resigned as the chief of police of Dallas, uh, where you can see this guy, I mean, he's right height, weight, build, and so forth, similar mode of identification for doorman with the, his head tilted, hands in pocket. I mean, there's just no mistaking it once you see it. It's interesting to notice we also have a photograph of the so-called three tramps uh, being escorted through Dealey Plaza where there's a party walking past them at one point, which would never have been tolerated had this actually been a serious you know, arrest and investigation, who's hmm. been identified as none other than Edward Lansdale by J. L. Fletcher Prouty, who is the Colonel X character in the Oliver Stone's film, but also by Victor Krulak, among the most celebrated of Marine Corps generals, both of whom knew him personally. And then we have a third photograph where Lansdale is waiting to speak to George H.W. Bush. So there's a wonderful article by Richard Hook, H-O-O-K-E, entitled, Did George H.W. Bush Coordinate a JFK Hit Team? To which the answer is a resounding yes. <laughs> oh, yes. 
Yeah, where that article, mine with Jim Mars and others, are in a new book I've just published, JFK, Who, How, and Why, released from moonrockbooks.com. Yeah, moonrockbooks.com is where you can find this this great work of art, I'd have to say, by you, Jim. I don't think there's anyone else out there who does the homework quite like you do. Well, I wisely, you know, I think one of my great strengths is I know my own limitations. I know what I don't know ah, so that I bring in mm-hmm. experts in all the areas where I myself am not an expert. I'm very good at synthesizing, organizing, presenting arguments. I spent 35 years offering courses in logic, critical thinking, and scientific reasoning as a, to college students as a professor. So that in the case of JFK, for example, I brought in uh, the, the Bob Livingston, the world authority on the human brain, who was also an expert on wound ballistics. I've already mentioned David Mantic, who, who's the world's leading expert on the medical evidence today, who has got both a Ph.D. in physics from Wisconsin, an M.D. from Michigan, board certified in radiation oncology which is a treatment of cancer using x-ray therapy. So he's an expert in the interpretation of x-rays. Where he entered the National Archives for the first time in December of 1992, telling me he thought he'd find evidence of a second shot to the head, but also that the autopsy x-rays had been altered. He, in fact, found both. Where I published their important studies in the first of my three books, Shattering the Cover-Up, Assassination Science in 1998, Murder in Dealey Plaza 2000, The Great Zapruder Film Hoax in 2003. So what we have in this latest book, which Mm -hmm. has 15 contributors, it's uh, like uh, about 530 pages. It has over a 1,000 photographs, including all the frames of the Zapruder film, which you can also get at my website, assassinationscience.com, the very first of all the websites I've ever created. If you scroll down, you can find where there's this absolutely brilliant version of the film, the accident film, of course, by John P. Costello, another member of the research group I put together, also has a Ph.D. in physics, this time with a specialty in electromagnetism, the properties of light and images of moving objects, where John created a new version of the film. Heretofore, the best available was the MPI version, which turned out to have missing frames. It had frames in the wrong order, and it had suffered from uh, different kinds of optical distortion. So John created a new version that has all the frames in the proper order, restores some missing frames, and eliminates uh, uh, aspect ratio and pin cushion distortion. So you have it available. There's no copyright issue. In fact, in the new book, I I address the copyright issue I, I actually commissioned an attorney from California by the name of Mike Pincher to do a brief about the copyright question, and he determined that there were multiple grounds why it wasn't copyrightable, although that's the method by means of which the government has actually denied students the opportunity to study the film by charging massive sums of money for using any frames or for showing it. But there's an, a, 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 a transcendent reason why it's not copyrightable, it's a, it's a fabrication. It was created in a secret CIA lab called Hawkeye Works adjacent to Kodak headquarters uh, over the weekend after the assassination where, where a 16-millimeter unsplit version of the film already edited by the agency was brought to the National Photographic Interpretation Center on Sunday, the 24th, to replace the 8-millimeter already split film developed in Dallas that had been brought to the National Photographic Interpretation Center on Saturday. And that's this. 
that that film is a product of a government uh, of government work effort. Yeah, the, the alteration of video and, and photography or photographs rather it, it's astonishing. It's a government document. Jesus so Christ! It can't be copyrighted. The whole thing's been an elaborate fraud from the beginning. So it's I, really insane. It is. It uh, is. It is. Yes. And and, and mm -hmm. if you go to that uh, that version of the film. Uh, at the Gary King YouTube channel, and I think it's the second or the third item in all the videos he has there. You'll see where I go through very patiently uh, all the proofs we have, which are manifold, that the film was altered, including that when they put in the Stemmons Freeway sign, apparently they had to take it out because there was a hole in the sign. They replaced it in the wrong position. So, you know, that's one of the proofs. That's a real simple but n totally convincing proof. I even have a GIF there where you can see, mm -hmm. you know, from a photograph of the sign before the assassination, so we know it's the right place, how the sign is offset, it's higher and slightly to the left. So you have the GIF in relation to the original sign coming in to show you how they misplaced it. They also blacked out the blowout at the back of JFK's head. But I had, uh, it, it occurred to me that they were spending so much time around frame 313 and those immediately following where 313 is where what's supposed to be the hit is uh, takes place. It's actually the beginning of the merge of these two different hits uh, because, you know, I mentioned the one by uh, by uh, es Escadero, yes. Yeah, where he, he slumped forward and then Jack eased him back up and then he was hit in the right temple by the shot fired by Sturgis. Well, he, as a consequence of that slump to the left, but they took out too many frames. So they, they, they tried to merge them. They did it imperfectly. You still have forward motion from frame 312 to 313. And then you have this jerky back into the left, which no one saw in Dealey Plaza for the simple reason it didn't occur. They just took out too many frames. What about Malcolm Wallace? Yeah, Mac Wallace, fascinating guy. I mean, he was Lyndon's personal hitman, as I mentioned. He was firing at... Conley in the mistaken belief that it was Ralph Yarborough hit him as many as three times. So we got the four hits. David thinks there might have been a fifth, another hit to the head oh. in JFK. You got you got the, the shot in the grass fired by you know uh, Roscoe White. Uh, that, that that that's a fifth or a sixth shot. You got the shot that hit the chrome strip. That's a seventh. Then you got the three, eight, nine, ten. Uh, and, you know, there may have been yet another that hit Jack in the head because David's fairly convinced at this point in time that there was actually a third hit to the head during this interval when the vehicle was brought to a halt. Turns out Larry Rivera has rediscovered interviews that were done by a fellow named Fred Newcomb of the four motorcycle escort officers back in 1971 and their supervisor, Stavis Ellison, that discovered that during the limo stop, a lot of activities took place that Officer Hargis dismounted his bike and ran in between the limos up to the grassy knoll in the belief the shots had originated there, that Officer Jackson on the opposite side actually motored up the grassy knoll until his bike fell over, and then he dismounted and proceeded on foot. Five agents dismounted the Queen Mary, surrounded the presidential. One took a chunk of skull from a little boy, threw it in the back seat. So that whereas initially I had been inclined to believe this was uh, a stop of just a few seconds, maybe six or eight max. I'm now convinced that with all this activity that it had to have taken at least 20 seconds. So when you put, you put that together with the missing gap 
from the accident version of the film, when the motorcade starts to turn from Houston on to Elm, there's a big gap, and all of a sudden it's in front of the, 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 the stem and sign, or about to hit the stem and sign. I surmise that's at least five more seconds. That's a, that's a, at 18.3. We're talking about 100 frames there and 400 frames. Uh, since there are only 487 frames, we're talking about more than half of the film having been excluded from the extant version. Not to mention the alterations made internally. Because Mary Mormon and Gene Hill were, for example, in the street. Have they both reported multiple occasions, but they're shown on the grass. They did a lot of other things in addition. Yes. Did Frank McGee uh, say some interesting things about the JFK assassination? Well, he did during during the interview. Uh, uh, during the, you know, see it now, the live stream reporting on NBC, where you got Chet Huntley and others talking about it, and they're reporting these two wounds, the wound of the throat and the wound, the blowout at the back of the head caused by a shot that entered the right temple, where even Malcolm Kilduff, the acting press secretary, when he announced the president was dead, he explained it was a simple matter of a bullet right through the head while pointing to his right temple. When the stories start to come in, that the shooter is supposed to be have been above and behind, Frank McGee says, this is incongruous. How can the man have been shot from in front, from behind? And, of course, that was the basic conundrum confronting the Warren Commission that they had to deal with, counting on the fallible memories of most Americans that they wouldn't retain the information that those two shots initially reported were both fired from in front. Now, Jim, I, I do want to ask you, why is this so important to you? And I ask you this question without any disharmony. Well, I was, uh, you know, Jack would have been, had I not been the youngest member of my class, the first president I could have voted for. I graduated from Princeton in 1962. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Jack was taken out in 1963. Uh, I was a huge fan of Jack and Jackie. I was in the Marine Corps at the time, having been commissioned on graduation as a second lieutenant. I was in the Far East, anchored out above aboard the USS, well, actually LPH, landing platform helicopter, Iwo Jima, which means it has a shallow hull as opposed to a normal carrier, which has to have a very stable runway for fixed-wing aircraft because helicopters go vertically up and down. You don't need that. So this is more like a floating bathtub. Uh, anchored out in Kaohsiung Harbor, Formosa, when I was awakened by the officer of the deck at 3.30 in the morning to tell me that the president had been shot. He actually was the executive officer of the mortar battery, of which I was the fire direction officer at the time. Then he awakened me an hour later to tell me they'd caught the guy who'd done it. He was a communist. I thought then it was pretty fast work, but no today exactly why, of course, because he was set up and framed. For example, that, that I mentioned that photograph on the cover of Life magazine. Yes, I remember. Yeah, when, mm -hmm. J, when J.D. Tippett was shot, they tried to make out the case that Oswald had done it. Uh, they produced a wallet. They produced a jacket. They claimed that there had been, you know, the officer had been hit three times in the torso and then once in the right temple, interestingly. But the first officer on the scene had initialed the slugs, which had been ejected from automatics. And they were, I say plural, for two reasons. One is there were four shell casings of two different manufacturers, Western and Remington Ram. Plus a, a woman witness by the name of Aquila Clement said two men had shot uh, Tippett, and neither of them looked like Oswald. And it, in fact, uh, subsequently they'd make a substitution of the evidence, and now you had four rounds that had all come from a revolver. I mean, can you imagine 
shooting a police officer four times and opening, you know, your, the cylinder to remove incriminating shell casings. I mean, that's simply idiotic. No one would do it. Uh, but this was a part and parcel of the attempt to frame Oswald. Now, the interesting thing is that in order for Oswald to have shot Tippett, he would have had to go way out of his way. He was actually heading for the Texas theater by relatively direct route uh, and was obtaining, buying popcorn from a fellow named Butch Burroughs at, at uh, 110 when Tippett was shot. So it, it, not only that, but when they arrested Oswald, of course, he had an I, uh, uh, two ID in his wallet for Alec Heidel and for Lee Oswald. While they were claiming to have found a wallet in the vicinity of the shooting of Tippett. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I don't know anyone who carries two wallets. Uh, you know, right. this whole thing was absurd from the beginning. The, the Dallas police appear to have been in charge of framing Oswald. And they were very sloppy about it. Yeah, they covered up the JFK assassination. And it, it's quite terrible, especially if you do your own homework and you're quite curious about this. If you dive into this, you'll definitely find the answers. and. It's damning, totally. But, right, the key to the cover-up was actually stealing the body, you know, from, from Parkland. By, by law, the only crime that had been committed was murder. That was a state, not a federal offense, even if you're murdering the president. There were no laws on the books against that as a federal crime at the time. So they had to hold a Texas inquest, which never occurred. Theron Warren, who was a justice of the peace who ought to have conducted it, was there and tried to stop them, but they forcibly removed the body. It was put in a, a bronze ceremonial casket, put aboard Air Force One, uh, while Lyndon Johnson was being sworn in, which wasn't necessary. They called everyone aboard the plane forward, with the exception of someone securing the, the casket. And the body at that point appears to have been taken out of the casket, put in a body bag in a secret, well, not known to the public compartment in the plane. So when it landed at Andrews Air Force Base, while Jackie and Bobby were unloading, you know, with this huge lift, this bronze casket, which then would be loaded into a gray Navy ambulance and driven with an enormous entourage off to Bethesda Naval Hospital. Jack's body was actually being offloaded on the other side of the plane, put into a helicopter, flown to Walter Reed, where the best uh, path pathologists in the military removed different body uh, bullet fragments from the body. It wouldn't have done to have two different calibers of bullets, for example, to show up in the body, which was then put back in the body bag and into a pinkish-gray shipping casket of the kind that was being used to bring bodies back from Vietnam put in the back of a black hearse and driven over to Bethesda to be unloaded at the morgue in the back so that the body was already there undergoing autopsy when Gerald Custer, who was the radiation technologist who actually took the x-rays, was proceeding upstairs to have uh, exposed x-rays be developed when he looked out the w window and saw the gray Navy ambulance, the massive entourage, and Jackie heading in asking himself what in the world's going on because Jack was already undergoing autopsy. Yes, truly astonishing stuff. And then they altered the x-rays, they altered the film, they altered photographs, they actually altered the wounds. I've already mentioned the throat wound was changed from a small, clean puncture wound with a straight incision across it into something really rather gaping and ungainly, apparently by Commander Humes using the information provided by Bob Livingston. But in addition, when the body first got there, Humes took a cranial saw to the skull of JFK and enlarged the fist-sized hole at the back of the wound 
so that now covered, you know, much of the top of the head. I mean, it was quite massive. I compare them as a heel to a footprint. In other words, if you consider the fist-sized wound to be the heel of a fairly large foot, then what he did was increase it so much that he took off basically, you know, all the or most of the back of the head. But interestingly, he did it in front of two witnesses, one of whom was uh, William Thomas Evan Robinson, who had turned out to be the mortician who embalmed the body for burial. So when the Assassination Records Review Board was uh, de deposing key witnesses and they came to him, they showed him a sketch that Boswell, who was assisting Humes, T. Thornton Boswell, had drawn with some dotted lines around the skull. And uh, Thomas uh, Evans Robinson said, oh, no, the doctors did that and explained how they'd enlarge the wound, you know, to make it uh, much, much larger to try to simulate something that could have been shot by, caused by a shot from behind. David Lifton was the first to detect this, actually. It was quite brilliant on his part. But, but the dimensions of the head wound in the Bethesda autopsy report, which was actually like the third version, is described in mathematical detail. So it's just enormous. One of the oddest peculiarities in the history of the assassination is when the House Select Committee on Assassinations reinvestigated the crime in 1977-78 and then published their final report in 1979. They contracted this wound to a small entry right at the top of the head, right at the crown of the head. Now, the, the, the FBI and the Secret Service, the day of the assassination, had concluded there'd been three shots with three hits. The jack had been hit in the back, five and a half inches below the collar, just to the right of the spinal column. You find the holes in the shirt, the jacket he was wearing on the autopsy report, even described by the death certificate given by his personal physician. I mean, we have a huge amount of evidence of the location of that wound, even when they did reenactments. Somebody sitting in for JFK, where they had a, a large patch on the back at that location, and then a much smaller wound uh, uh, patch up on the head in the vicinity of what's known technically as the external occipital protuberance. It's this bump on the back of your head where you'd recline if you were lying back in a bathtub, which is where the Bethesda physician said he was hit in the back of the head. Well, the, what the FBI and the Secret Service concluded was he had that shot in the back that Conley had a separate shot in the back, unrelated to Jack's, which had gone in, shattered the rib, come out, according to them, hit the wrist, wound up in his left thigh, and then Jack had been hit in the back of the head. Well, what the HSCA did was not only contract the fist size wound as observed at Parkland, which is the most accurate because I actually discovered you can see it in later frames of the film, 374 was the first place I discovered it. Larry Rivera has subsequently discovered that the defect is highlighted by Jackie's white glove. In other words, there's a series of frames there where you can actually see the, the defect well-defined because there's no head where there should be head when illuminated by Jackie's white glove behind it. I mean, a fascinating find where this Larry guy has been doing this brilliant research time after time after time. Uh, so that uh, uh, not only did they contract it from the fifth size blowout, which was accurate, but also from that enormous missing back of the head. So to this small wound at the top, which they moved up then by four inches. Now, that would be a scandal all by itself to right. move it from, you know, four inches upward. But, I mean, they're reducing it from the actual description you can find in the autopsy 
report from Bethesda, which I included as an appendix to assassination science, I knew, I know, a member of the medical panel, very famous guy, Cyril Wecht. He's been involved in all kinds of high-profile crime cases. He's probably the one one forensic pathologist to appear on television more times than any other in the history of, of uh, the, the medium. And uh, I called up Cyril and said, Cyril, I said, I don't understand. I said, how did the HSCA medical panel contract the wound from this massive blowout as described in the Bethesda autopsy report to this small wound at the top of the head? And to my utter astonishment, he replied by saying, I'll have to check my notes. Interesting. Very interesting. But they got away with it, you see, by altering the x-rays. They said all the witnesses who talked about seeing Jack's brains blown out the back of their head, and there were a whole lot of them, I mean, very competent people, had been mistaken because the x-rays didn't show it. But that's where David went in and discovered they didn't show it because it had been patched in the x-ray. They'd use a material too dense to be human bone to patch it. So there's this area when he did his study, he identified his area P for patch. And when you compare the altered X-ray, you know, which he's now revealed with the area P, with a blowout you can see in frame 374, there's a very high degree of correspondence, except in 374, part of the defect is you can't see because of hair remaining on Jack's hat. But, I mean, there's no doubt about it. You can see all this stuff. It's it's in both the book, but you can get, you know, an overview by going to Gary King YouTube channel and just – Looking for, you know, JFK, uh, who, how, and why, 2007. Great stuff. Man, they they really wanted JFK dead. Really wanted him dead. This is to get back to your key question about the sponsors. Ah, yes. Included the CIA because Jack was threatening to shatter it into a thousand pieces. He discovered he'd been massively misled by them about the Bay of Pigs, claiming that there would be a popular uprising because Fidel was so unpopular. In fact, the opposite was the case. Correct. Fidel actually knew when the invasion would take place. The Soviet Union had obtained that information, which they'd shared with him. The CIA actually had learned that Fidel knew. Everyone, in other words, knew, uh, except for the commander-in-chief. I have no doubt if Jack had been so informed, he would have called it off because it would be absurd to launch this attack when Castro was prepared and knew it was coming. So Jack was threatening to shatter the CIA into a thousand pieces. That gave him a tremendous motivation. It's not altogether unlike, you know, Trump's discontent with the intelligence agencies here because so many of them, you know, are running an Obama-Hillary-led coup against Trump to try to delegitimize the administration especially before it can take out the massive pedophile network in Washington, D.C., to which we shall return. Because yes. it's such a terribly important subject. Yes, we'll, we'll get into all of this uh, shortly here. Joint chiefs yes. were upset with Jack because he'd not invaded Cuba, contrary to their unanimous recommendation. He'd gone ahead and signed an above-ground test ban treaty with the Soviet Union, contrary to the unanimous opposition. And now he was going to pull our forces out of Vietnam, where they believed the stand had to be taken against the expansion of international godless communism. So look how the chiefs were involved. You had Edward Lansdale actually, it appears, positioning the shooters, determining the sequence of shots. You had the body flown after it's, you know, taken out of the plane on the opposite side of Air Force One, flown to Walter Reed, 
You got the best forensic pathologist removing Baldy fragments. Then you have this Navy officer who'd never conducted a, a, an autopsy on a gunshot victim before, taking a cranial saw to the skull, enlarging the throat wound. I mean, you know, and then they alter the x-rays. That right. appears to have been done by the acting uh, radiology officer. The regular was in Chicago somewhere. I think this was, you know, they put in the acting because they knew he'd do what they wanted them to do, where he, uh, you know, had had covered up. They concealed the blowout at the back of the head that actually added a 6.5 metallic fragment to the anterior posterior x-ray in the effort to implicate this obscure World War weapon. It, to weapon, even though Lee Oswald, see, had he been an assassin, could have obtained a far superior firearm on any corner store in Dallas without even showing any ID. They created a fabricated paper trail so they could implicate him, and it had to be an obscure caliber weapon in order to make the case seem to be airtight, because no one actually in the right mind would have ever selected such a weapon for an assassination. Then you had the uh, anti-Castro Cubans who were interested in revenge or retaliation because they'd been given the impression, which was actually misleading, right. but CIA allowed to stand that Jack had betrayed them at the Bay of Pigs. So you got uh, Nestor Tony Escadro in the, in the Dal Tex firing three shots from a Manlooker Carcano, which incidentally were the only unsilenced shots that were fired to create the acoustical impression that only three shots had been fired. Uh, roughly, it was supposed to be like three volleys of shots, uh, but we got a couple strays, you know. So, I mean, the, the, the various ways of, of looking at how it was going, there was a guy with an umbrella pumping the umbrella, which meant uh, as long as he's still pumping, the target's still alive, keep shooting. There was a, a Cuban who stepped out and shook his face, uh, his fist toward Greer, which uh, has been interpreted as meaning to stop, and he pulls the limo to the left and so abruptly that all the passengers are jostled forward. So y you have him firing from the Dow Techs, uh, but um, in addition, you had, the, the, so the, you know, as a, the anti-Castro-Cuban element put up uh, him as Correct. their shooter. Mm -hmm. uh, then you had the Eastern establishment surrounding the Fed, where one of their representatives had been at the ratification meeting at the home of Clint Murkison Sr. the night before the assassination in the form of John J. McCloy, who'd been the former high commissioner to Germany, head of Chase Manhattan Bank, and whom Lyndon would appoint to the Warren Commission as one of the two civilians. So he had two senators, Richard Russell and John Sherman Cooper, two members of the House, Hale Boggs and, and uh, Gerald Ford. And then two civilians, but one of them is John J. McCloy and the other is Alan Dulles. I mean, you know, Jack had removed Dulles from the head of the CIA after discovering how he'd been, you know, completely bamboozled, had the wool pulled over his eyes about the Bay of Pigs. Then we had the mafia, of course, which was upset because Bobby was cracking down on organized crime, bringing more arrests, indictments, and convictions than ever before in the history of of organized crime, which J. Edgar had steadfastly denied even existed because just as he had sex dossiers on most of the members of Congress, the mob had one on Edgar in compromising positions with his close personal friend Clyde Tolson. So that's what I, yeah, that's what I heard. Yeah, until a Joe Vlachi hearing where the whole thing was described in such detail, it was politically impossible to continue to deny it and retain any credibility whatsoever. Hoover had simply ignored or, or, or affirmed the non-existence of organized crime.
Yeah. And then you had Israel, of course. Jack was at loggerheads with David Ben-Gurion, who was a founding member and the first prime minister of Israel over Israel's desire to develop nuclear weapons because Jack thought it would lead to a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. Unquestionably, Jack was right, but it infuriated Ben-Gurion, and he appears to have directed the Mossad to participate in taking out Jack at the time he himself resigned in disgust. So. Just a few days. Those are the principal sponsors. Yeah, you know? yes. then, then see Lyndon and Hoover. Mm -hmm. Lyndon was a key guy tying them all together. He used to go over to the White House and schmooze with the Secret Service. Right. You know? <laughs> yes. He, he knew exactly what he was doing and how to, you know, make it all happen. And because he was going to be the new president. They usually could, do, don't they? Yeah. And he could control exactly the course of events that followed, which he did, of course, to ensure that no one would ever pay a price for participating in the assassination of JFK. By the way, just a few days ago, I had the movie All the President's Men playing in the background, a film yeah. that I've always, I've always loved. Um, do you like the film? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I mean, the whole Watergate thing is absolutely fascinating. Oh, yeah. Well, what's most interesting, however, is the revival. The fact you're getting all this attention now is because that uh, the, the, the Obama-Hillary uh, CIA uh, cabal, which have infested our media so that, you know, uh, through Operation Mockingbird, w w which was an attempt to get the CIA in control of the news uh, ah, being yes. delivered to the American people, mm -hmm. where William Colby, back in 1975, already explained to Congress that the agency owns everyone of significance in the major media, and today it's much, much worse they're doing this because they're trying to play on purported parallels between Watergate and, and Donald Trump. Right. Have, but they have no basis, in fact, because, you know, a, 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 an analogy is faulty when there are more differences than, simil than similarities or when there are few but crucial differences or when the analogy is taken to be conclusive. In this case, if you stop and ponder – Trump fired his director of the FEI. He's legally yes. entitled to do it. Uh, it was very disanalogous with Nixon going after a special prosecutor who could only be fired by the attorney general. So Trump wasn't firing a special prosecutor. He was firing the director of the FBI. Nixon asked the then director of the FBI, Elliot Richardson, to fire him. Richardson refused and resigned. That made William Ruckelshaus' deputy, the new acting attorney general, he asked Ruckelshaus to fire him. Ruckelshaus uh, refused and resigned. Then Robert Bork, the solicitor general, number three in the Department of Justice, became the acting attorney general. And when Nixon asked him to fire Archibald Cox, the special prosecutor, Bork complied and fired him. But this was because... Bork, uh, I mean, Cox was subpoenaing these tapes, you know, the White House tapes, a a as evidence. There's no subpoena of evidence from Trump. He wasn't firing a special prosecutor. Though there's reason to think that he might even be entitled to that, although legally, yeah, yeah legally he may be able to do so because we no longer have the special counsel law that made it impossible for the president to fire the the special prosecutor, this was post-Watergate legislation. Let me fill you in on this. Former mm -hmm. FBI assistant director says special counsel Mueller was appointed without art articulation of any crime and is against statute. Former FBI assistant director James Kalstrom said during an interview Tuesday on the Laura Ingram show 
and this is dated June 15th. That yes. special counsel Robert Mueller's 15-year friendship with fired former director James Comey is, quote, a huge conflict of interest. Kallstrom called Mueller's selection as special counsel inappropriate and off the charts. Quote, it's a huge conflict of interest. Quite frankly, I was really, really surprised and disappointed with the deputy attorney general who first off appointed a special counsel when there was no articulation of any crime whatsoever. And the statute actually calls for that. So that was ignored, Kallstrom said. Now, what this means is before you can appoint a special counsel, you got to have a crime specific to be investigated for the special counselor to investigate. There is no crime. Yes. This is more like a Soviet-style era where you have the man and then you go on a search to find some crime you can implicate him with. It's completely wrong. It's a violation of the statute. And it just shows how far amok Washington, D.C. has gone completely off the rails here trying to uh, delegitimize the administration of Donald Trump. And for the reason, primarily, I'm now convinced that he's actually going after the pedophiles. You know, we live in a big, broken system. We are told what to think, what to like, what to boo. Mainstream media has exposed itself time and time again. We already know who's bought and paid for. We, we've all learned this. And this obstruction of uh, alleged uh, justice, is this, in your opinion, a true red herring? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, the whole Russian thing I've described as a wild goose chase because there was no Russian hacking. It turns out the whole Russian hacking meme was made up by Robbie Mook and John Podesta within 24 hours of Hillary's concession speech to explain away the, 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 the miserable campaign they're run and her, her failure to win uh, an election she had been expected to carry effortlessly. So, you know, Hillary's great at blaming other people for her problems. Uh, I mean, the, the list of those she has implicated just as long as, as your arm. And this is uh, just the most spectacular of them all, uh, because we also have, you know, reports that actually the FBI invited a, a UK intel guy by the name of Christopher Steele to dig up dirt on Trump. They offered him $50,000 to do it, that it was he who came out with this so-called Russian dossier that has Trump hiring a couple of prostitutes to pee in a bed that Obama had slept in. I heard that, but yes. But that the FBI found the whole story so lurid and unbelievable, they refused to pay him the $50,000. Hmm. So that was planted in a phony website that was created called Prop or Not by the Washington Post, which has become a plaything for Jeff Bezos, who's become a billionaire with Amazon.com, who has a $600 million contract with the CIA to handle certain aspects of their electronic operations. So he guys got a massive conflict of interest. He's using the Washington Post as nothing but a propaganda organ. So the Post picks up and starts broadcasting about this Russian dossier that even the FBI thought was too incredible to, to pay for. And but this yes. also implicates <laughs> Comey. In fact, there's a brand new report that I haven't even been able to digest yet that says that uh, – Judicial Watch, which is run by Larry Klayman. This guy's a completely brilliant guy. He knows how to use Freedom of Information Act requests and so forth. Has now taken possession, now knows that Comey all along had a backup recording of all of Hillary's emails. He Ooh. all along has had this backup recording of all of Hillary's emails. Those emails, by the way, are damning, as I always say on this program. 
My goodness, WikiLeaks. Gotta love them. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. WikiLeaks is sensational. I love it, yeah. I was absolutely dumbfounded when this guy, Pompeo, the new director of CIA, was lambasting WikiLeaks as some kind of, it's supposed to be some Russian disinformation operation, which is ludicrous. I don't believe that for one moment. I don't either. I mean, it's, it's, it's completely nutty. I mean, Vladimir Putin has denied there was any Russian hacking. Julian Assange and Craig Murray both know the leaker and have asserted he was not Russian. Seth Rich appears to have been killed for leaking the DNC emails to yes. Julian Assange. Julian has offered $20,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of whoever was responsible for his death. A fourth-year surgery resident at Washington Hospital Center has reported he was alive and well when they treated him, but eight hours after his arrival, law enforcement officers swarmed the hospital and put him off limits. He had been expected to survive, but expired after their arrival. The investigation of the murder has been stopped by the D.C. federal attorney, who is the brother of Debbie Wasserman Schultz. The body of the prosecutor pursuing the case washed up on a Florida beach in her district, not far from the residence of the judge involved in the case. I mean, this is all unbelievable. It's outrageous. It is. It's outrageous. Seth Rich was murdered. He was taken out gangster style, back of the head with with a silencer, in my my opinion. No, actually, he suffered a couple of wounds. Neither of them was life-threatening. One wound was an entry and an exit, but it entered the back and exited the abdomen. The other entered but didn't exit. They repaired damage to the liver, and they they did a section of uh, colon, but it was very modest. the fourth-year med resident said he's seen many cases that were much worse uh, that survived. He was not expected to have any problems until this. he's transferred to the ICU. And eight hours after his arrival, these law enforcement officials arrive in the swarm and deny access. They cut off all the treatment to Seth Rich. Yeah, we have a report That's that they also yes. explain it, that, that the doctor who is in charge of Seth Rich is, uh, is a friend uh, of uh, John Podesta and Tony. Yes, and speaking of one of the Podesta brothers, James Podesta, I believe. That's um, Tony and John. To- oh, Tony and John. Yes, sorry about that. I'm yeah. thinking of a, a different individual. I was actually thinking of James Elephantus. Yeah, James Elephantus. Not, not right. him, yes. Who well, is well, a boyfriend right. of the guy David Brock who runs Media Matters. Yes, right? and, and we'll get into that in a second here. But, yes, Podesta, I recall uh, in the emails that he was all for – leakers to be made an example of. So, yeah, well, that's right. He there said, you go. Yeah, right. In one of the emails, he says, I think we need to make an example of one of these leakers, even if it's real or not. In other words, he didn't really care if the guy wasn't really a leaker. But the fact is that Seth Rich fit the bill. Isn't they that? Twice, isn't, yeah. And, and they, they were amateurs. It, it wasn't a pro shooting. It was an amateur shooting. So they had to polish him off in the hospital. Yes, that's that's terrible. And his parents, by the way, have been... I'm going going to different media outlets and trying to stop people talking about their murder. They appear to be being manipulated. I saw one interview with him where they seemed perfectly normal. His brother was having difficulty controlling his emotions. Uh, But they got a a DNC PR guy as their spokesman. That's what's going on. They're being manipulated by this spokesman for the DNC who undoubtedly works for Debbie Wasserman Schultz who's involved in all of this right up to her eyeballs. I mean, you know, when it all washes out, I will not be surprised if Debbie Wasserman Schultz is indicted for murder, among other offenses. 
Jeez, it goes deep. And and just recently, we, we saw another shooting with Steve Scalise, who was critically injured in that GOP baseball game. Oh, that's very interesting because Scalise, see, is a, with a GOP whip in the house. And he'd been very aggressive in, in going after the pedophiles. And it now appears that that was the motive for shooting him. Would you believe this? St- Steny Heuer, Hoyer, who's the whip for the Democrats, sent pizza over to Scalise's office to his staff. And I'll bet you anything the pizza came from Comet, Ping Pong, and Besta. Really? I yeah. had no idea. Yeah. I mean, this is rubbing wow. your nose in it, right? The, yeah. That's it's a message for everyone. Even it's more outrageous. I, I don't know if you've run across Bill Still, but he has these wonderful short reports. Why was Scalise shot? Bill Still report 1671 makes the, the sorts of points I'm making here now that it appears to be because Scalise was very strong in going after the pedophiles. Ah, I see. Yes. And this gunman was a Bernie Sanders supporter, they're saying. That's right. And he probably supports gun control. Probably so the guy, the guy looks to me like he's a virtually perfect candidate for, you know, somebody who uh, can be managed to do things. And, of course, he's dead now, so he's not right. going to be telling anything. I just did a story about uh, an interview on Friday about the death of Bobby or Sirhan Sirhan. What was precisely uh, in that category? He, he, I have from multiple sources. So I, I address him. I'll tell everyone where they can find this. Have been subjected to hypnosis. He, he'd been doing this uh, aut- virtually automatic handwriting. RFK must die. RFK must die. Uh, there was a girl in a polka dot dress there who appears to have been part of triggering him off to f- unload his eight round twenty two caliber revolver. But Sirhan was only. In front of Bobby, Bobby was shot at at least four times from behind, from the side. The bullet that killed him entered from an inch and a half behind his right ear. There were two other shots that entered below his armpit and slightly below that that went upward, the second of which hit his neck vertebrae. He was being escorted by a security officer who had a similar caliber and make handgun by the name of Thane Eugene Caesar, who appears to have been the person who shot him, and would you believe as, Bo- as Bobby's lying there on the floor, uh, being comforted by a Filipino worker in the pantry, lying on the ground is none other than Thane Eugene Caesar's tie, which Bobby apparently grabbed as he was falling to the ground. It's quite outrageous. These politicians are now being targeted. It's a very strange situation. And by the way, these individuals were extremely lucky. I actually had a flashback once I saw that footage, which I'm sure you saw the five minutes of footage from the chaos that ensued during the GOP baseball game. I had a fla- sure. yes, I, I had a flashback to 1997 North Hollywood, uh, the bank robbery. The LAPD was outgunned by, I believe, two bank robbers equipped with modified automatic weapons and, and heavy body armor. These guys weren't playing games. They went out there and tried to make this thing happen. It it was insane. And of course, not to mention the 2002 sniper attacks that terrorized the Washington area. Do you remember that, James? Yeah, sure. My goodness. Shooting out of the trunk. Yeah. That was pretty crazy. Get this. Within a, you know, within a day, Nancy Pelosi is blaming Trump for creating an environment of violence, even though it's a Bernie Sanders supporter who shot down Republicans playing baseball. I mean, 
for a woman, she's got a lot of balls. And I'll, tell you, <laughs> right. I'll tell you something else about Nancy Pelosi. I became suspicious of her when it turned out that the delegate, the elector who was leading the false elector movement, in other words, those who'd been selected to cast their votes on behalf of the state for their designated candidate were being appealed to abandon that, to not to vote for Trump, for example. It wound up costing Trump two voters, two electors from Texas, and and Hillary five, four of whom were from the state of Washington, three of whom voted for Ralph Nader, as I recall, and one of whom voted for an American, a Native American Indian activist woman who I'm sure would have been a far superior president to Hillary Clinton. But the fact is, it turned out that that elector who was leading the, the campaign was from California, turned out to be Nancy Pelosi's daughter, which immediately had me suspecting she was involved in the pedophile business. I discover almost immediately she has her own pizzeria called Goat Hill Pizza in San Francisco, featuring the satanic image of these goat's heads. Uh, a, a fan who, hearing me discuss it went there to her pizzeria and took photographs. And you find the walls inside are covered by drawings and letters from little children. And there are a series of men there sitting in the pizzeria who don't look like they're waiting for a sausage and pepperoni. I'm telling you, I think these aging women like Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi believe they're rejuvenated by drinking the blood of children. They're involved in this. We had reports about it from the beginning. Here's one of the earliest when the 650,000 emails were discovered on Anthony Weiner's server. My NYPD source said it's much more vile and serious than classified material on Wiener's device. The email detailed the trips made by Wiener, Bill, and Hillary on their pedophile billionaire friend's plane, the Lolita Express. Yup, Hillary has a Jeffrey Epstein, yes. Pred- yeah, Hillary has a well-documented predilection for underage girls, and Mr. Wiener just could not bear to see those details deleted. We're talking an international child enslavement and sex ring. Not even Hillary's most ardent supporters and defenders will be able to excuse this. Yeah, they're getting all kinds of headlines. Breaking bombshell. NYPD blows whistle on new Hillary emails. Money laundering, sex crimes with children, child exploitation, pay-to-play perjury. And there's a huge amount of that. Creating this Russian hacking has just diverted attention. It was a brilliant stroke politically. And the American people, sad to say, have been, for the most part, taken in. They believe it. They believe there was Russian hacking. There was no Russian hacking, none, zip, zero, zilt, nada, none. In fact, there was hacking. It was being done by the Department of Homeland Security. We have, I think, as many as six or eight states that reported being attempts to hack their systems by DHS, not by Russia, by the Department of Homeland Security. Yes, I think people forget that Russia isn't the only country that has mingled in in elections. As you know, they have done it before, but so have we. Well, the fact of the matter is, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin has been interviewed recently, not only by Megyn Kelly, who got into this complete fiasco with yes. Alex Jones. And we're going to get but, into that in a moment, yes. But, but also by uh, Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone has like four hours of interviews with Vladimir Putin. And I watched uh, yesterday a one-hour interview with Oliver on Democracy Today with Amy Goodman, whom I regard as a left-wing gatekeeper on the order of Noam Chomsky, but where at least they got into some discussion 
about interference in the elections. And Putin was emphatic that Russia, as a matter of policy, does not interfere in other nations' elections. But, he observed, that is not the case with the United States. And you may or may not have noticed the recent article published by Roger Stone on uh, stonecoldtruth.com, his blog, about the CIA's legacy of lies, yes. in which he talks about Operation Paperclip and bringing all these Nazis all the into Nazis. the government. Right. But then 80 different, you know, there have been more than 80 coups and assassinations the U.S. has conducted abroad all over the world, the first of which was in 1953 in Iran. The American people forget we struck the first blow against Iran in 1953 by taking out its democratically elected government to impose the tyrannical rule of the Shah, which endured until 1979, when there was a popular uprising to restore the Islamic Republic. So, you know, and there's a case which is interesting, again, uh, with regard to this Russian hacking thing, because as Alan Dershowitz has observed, uh, there's no statute now, today, against a foreign country or even inviting a foreign country to participate in helping to win a presidential election in the United States. Ronald Reagan did that through William Casey, who negotiated with the Iranians to not release the hostages until after Reagan was inaugurated, so Jimmy Carden wouldn't win on a surge of emotion and euphoria from their release. So even if Trump had have any involvement with Russia, which which is not the case. I mean, it's totally made up, fabricated by Robbie Mook and John Podesta, as the American people will eventually begin to appreciate. There's no law against it. So he wouldn't have been violating any law anyway. You know, I haven't, got, I, I haven't seen any empirical evidence of any kind of uh, wrongdoing, to, to be honest with you, yet. Just bottomless conclusion after bottomless conclusion. And that's why this piece by the uh, former assistant, FBI former assistant director, is so terribly important, that, that he's been appointed without any articulation of a crime. But you can't appoint a special counsel, according to the statute, unless there's the articulation of a crime. Well, there's no crime here. This, this is the interesting parallel. Bill Clinton fired his FBI director the day before Vince Foster was found dead. Mm. And I'll tell you, my interpretation is he wanted to create chaos in the FBI so they couldn't properly investigate the d death of a man who purportedly committed suicide by shooting himself twice in the head, rolling himself up in a carpet and dumping himself out at a federal park. By the way, did you see the the American detainee? What's his name? Warmbier? Yeah, yeah. Come, you mean from North Korea? Mm-hmm. Did you see I don't know that what to man? Make of this. I well, mean, what just, the hell happened to him, by the way? I have no idea. I have no idea. But it would be very odd if the North Koreans had done something bad to him and then turned the body over. I mean, I just don't know. It's a baffling case. It it really is. There was no signs of brute force trauma to his head, correct? Right. That's right. That's right. That's hmm. right. That's interesting. I, I you know, I seriously wonder what the hell they did to him. Well, I don't know, but I, I mean, you know, North Korea, I suppose we could say, is one of the tougher cases in terms of, you know, the suspicion you'd have for torture and terrorism. Also, why the hell did he even go over there for? Oh, you know, I have to dig dig that up to recollect. It was uh, some peaceful meeting where oh, I, I know it happened. He stole a poster. He stole a yes, he stole poster a poster. Off the wall. Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then he pled, you know, guilty and through his mercy on the court and all that. 
I mean, it's like one of these cases, if you cross the border illegally in North Korea, you're, you're going to get, you know, maybe a, a life at hard labor. Or if you, you know, uh, uh, cross the, into Iran, you're going to be punished and sentenced to a couple of years. But if you enter the United States I- illegally, you're going to get a passport, you're going to get a social security, you're going to get a lifetime of support by the government. This is why Donald Trump's right about all this, and I cannot believe how the courts are hamstringing him from imposing very appropriate constraints. My God, if you look at Europe, the place is just turning into a morass. Sweden has become the rape capital of the universe because all these immigrants are raping all these Swedish women, and they've been making an effort to contain it. I have a good friend in Sweden with whom I discuss these matters. He says every Swede is upset about the situation, mm. but 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 very few are willing to take a stand about it. It's very bad. Yes, this I... appears to be a a, a a brainchild of Sheldon Adelson, who, who who or George Soros actually, George Soros, who seems to think that there should be a mixing of all the races. So I guess we're all sort of a light brown color. And then the pure Jewish race will come out to lead the world. This is reminiscent of Helter Skelter. Charles Manson's theory, he wanted a race war between the blacks and the whites. The blacks being stronger, he inferred, would win, but also being dumber, they'd need leadership where he and his entourage would come out of the mountains to lead them. It's something on that scale, on that order of insanity. It seems like it's a civil uprising most politicians out there are trying to induce. Well, it's real strange. I'm telling you, they're doing everything they can to undermine the Trump administration. And I repeat, it appears to be because he's actually taking measures to break down on the uh, crackdown on pedophiles. Uh, We're getting reports of low level arrests, but in a fair number that haven't been prevalent before. I did an interview about, oh, I don't know, maybe six months ago with Jim Rothstein, who was an NYPD Gold Shield detective, meaning he had a distinguished career who cracked many pedophile cases. And when I started telling him about the discoveries from the Anthony Weiner treasure trove, such as I described a moment ago, yes. and, and asked if he were surprised, he said no, mm-hmm. because in his experience, 70% of the political elite in the United States are engaged in pedophilia. Disgusting, really. Disgusting. Yes, uh, Anthony Weiner, time and time again, he just didn't learn his lesson, did he? No, but it looks as though he may be turning state's evidence because they had a lot of heavy charges against him and they gave him like the punished him sentence for the minimal. I think that's contingent on him cooperating. Anthony was always a self-centered person. I mean, he screwed Huma, Huma Abedin may fall into line too. She may also turn against Hillary because Hillary is the culprit. Hillary's a very, very nasty person. And they uh, all, I, and they all knew. Jim, they all knew the activities of one Anthony Weiner. Oh, sure. It's it's terrible. It's so terrible. It's disgusting. I'm outraged, to be honest with you. Well, there's so many murders that have been committed, you know, in order to suppress the WikiLeaks and all this. The the WikiLeaks attorney, John Jones, was run over by a train on April 8, 2016. The coroner publicly stated he was not suicidal. Former U.N. President John Ash died on June 22, 2016, two days before he was supposed to testify about Clinton Foundation money laundering. The guy was a bodybuilder, a weightlifter. His throat was crushed by a barbell. 
A 48-year-old uh, Mike Flynn, an investigative reporter, died on June 23rd, uh, 2016. This was the same day he published a report about the Clinton Foundation's shady dealings in communist China. We have Victor Thorne, of course, investigative journalist who published four books on the Clinton crime family. Found shot dead. He stated on talk radio earlier in the year, if I'm ever found dead, it was not suicide. I would mm. never kill myself. My goodness. Yet his death was ruled a suicide. 38-year-old Sean Lucas served the DNC with a lawsuit and then died immediately thereafter. He was suing the DNC for stealing the nomination from Bernie Sanders. Found dead with a deadly mixture of pills and, pills and herbs in his system, even though friends and family said he was no drug user. I remember his photograph the day that he served the suit. The guy looked, you know, very satisfied with what he was doing in the name of justice. Then we got this guy, Chris Cornell, about Chris who might not, but yeah, he's apparently well-known, a legendary auto slave and Soundgarden frontman. Right. More information suggests that his death was uh, not a coincidence. He worked closely with various foundations to mm. help and protect children from pedophilia and child trafficking. I didn't know that. That's a source close to Cornell has come forward claiming that he had uncovered evidence of a cocaine and child trafficking ring in Mena, Arkansas, that was tied to Bill and Hillary Clinton. Oh, my goodness. It just goes even deeper, doesn't it? Yeah, how many people are we going to let them kill? You know, I isn't mean, it obvious? Jesus. Jesus. Well, when you're... I mean, even the most dull-witted reviewing the evidence we've been discussing would have to conclude perfectly reasonably yeah. that Bill and Hillary Clinton at the heart of a crime syndicate that knows no bounds. When you're green lit by the government, my God, they're going to come after you and take you out for sure. And this Robert Mueller guy is no saint. You know, I mean, he became the FBI director a week before 9-11. He steeped down uh, five months after the Boston bombing. Sandy Hook took place on his watch. Those were all Inside jobs or false flags, I mean, they're very blatant. I have books on all of them. And the idea that this guy could allow those events to take place and do nothing about it. Here's, here's another from another article. Uh, FBI Director Robert Mueller oversaw the biggest cover-up in U.S. history, 9-11. Get this. Key point. Robert Mueller was deliberately selected to head the FBI during the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. It was by purposeful design that his tenure as FBI director began on September 4, 2001, just seven days before the 9-11 false flag terror operation. He remained on that job for 12 long years until September 4, 2013, to ensure that the FBI would never professionally investigate the greatest crime ever perpetrated on U.S. soil. In fact, Mueller's 12 years are marked by an overwhelming body of evidence which proves his willful neglect, dereliction of duty, official misconduct, and misprison of felony. Clearly, Mueller's greatest crime was overseeing the institutional cover-up of the 9-11 government conspiracy to create acts of terror, murder, and destruction against the American people. It's really frightening. It is. It really is. I mean, I sit here and I'm taking all this in again, and it's just, it's really wild stuff. And it's not its not some wild goose chase, as, as we talked about before. These are These are facts. These are facts about the law enforcement officials that the public is entrusting to bring truth and justice to the scene when they're, they have notable reputations for doing the opposite. In fact, uh, an article in which uh, Alan Dershowitz was observing that firing uh, the, the, the head of the FBI was no crime, dismissing Flynn was no crime, saying, you know, 
there's no obstruction of justice here, as Dershowitz ha- ha- has outlined it. Uh, but that for Comey to be told that he should abandon a prosecution, uh, that might qualify as an obstruction of justice. But if it did, it would be a crime he ought himself to have reported. So this particular article was saying that Comey did not report it. Uh, looks as though it could be a crime. And in fact, there doesn't appear to be any basis for actually believing that Trump committed an obstruction of justice. Uh, but not only that, Comey appears to have committed perjury because you may have, if you followed his testimony, I yes. watched it all morning mm-hmm. and then the discussion in the afternoon. He claimed he awakened in a cold sweat after no longer being in office, that he needed to make a memorandum about that conversation with Trump, which is what he then leaked to his friend, the professor at Columbia. Yep who got into the New York Times. But listen, Comey has a history of being very systematic and methodical. He makes copious notes immediately following every interview or conversation he has with any of these people, which is why there are those who think that if they will, he will turn over his copious memoranda to the courts, uh, uh, I mean, to the Congress, where Jason Chaffetz has asked for them, that they'll shed a lot of light on uh, on illicit activities by Loretta Lynch, Hillary Clinton, and a host of other players. But where, uh, you know, it would make sense that Mueller had made that memorandum immediately following his conversation with Donald Trump, not a week or 10 days later after he's been removed from office, you see, because if he if he made it when, in the normal way, which was his habit, then it was government property and his leaking it as a government offense. So he's trying to cover his hiney by making up a fanciful story about awaking in a cold sweat. I guarantee you James Comey doesn't wake in a cold sweat unless he thinks that they're actually on to him. So he may be waking in a cold sweat today, but not then. Yes. And two other random questions I had for you here. Before I even forget, I must ask you these things. Did you happen to see that Associated Press video with Bill Cosby? Well, what do you mean? At what point? You mean now that they've had a hung jury? Yes. Did you see that footage? Well, I saw footage. Were you noticing some some gestures or indications that he's been faking his well, apparent dependence on the person escorting him? For his example? face was priceless. Yeah, he looked he looked pretty contented, huh? Uh, it was hilarious just seeing him up there. Well, he appears to perform this uh, so arrogant. This, he was up this, this there. This act on you know. 48 women, I don't know, some staggering number. He, he'd get them, you know, uh, in a state of semi-consciousness or actual unconsciousness to have sex with them by giving them quaaludes and yeah, other and, drugs. And I mean, by the way, you this, have, is, this is just as despicable as it gets. You, you, have to, you have to keep a note that this, this guy, Bill Cosby, he actually had a comedy routine about giving women um, these drugs. Did he? Yeah, and sleeping with them. You know, I didn't recall that he had a a, a, a routine where he made a joke out of it. Oh That's yes, fascinating. Oh, oh yes, go to YouTube and you you could find that immediately. I just think, my God, Bill Cosby, his face after that whole ordeal, it was really telling. Well, I think this has to be some juror who just thinks that Bill Cosby has done too much good and doesn't deserve exactly. this punishment. It's got. It's got nothing to do with the evidence of the case, which is rather clear cut. So I, I I do believe they are going to retry him. Yes, they they said they would. And you know, I just finished this evening watching, by coincidence, 
uh, uh, five. This is another part of the my day. Uh, a, 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 a mini series about O.J. Simpson's case and how you know mm-hmm. he he evades two murder charges. Then it, then it was retried in a civil, much more orderly fashion. Of course, he's found guilty, so he owes this vast sum of money. But he's evading pain. He's making a lot of money, but he's having it, you know, secreted away in different places. Then he commits this huge blunder by going to recapture, take take back possession of mementos of his that were taken from his home as a part of the forfeiture, uh, and and is caught in the act. The whole thing is recorded, and he winds up in, with a judge who's unsympathetic and gives him a sentence that's equivalent to what he would have had. From the trial that he's been the, the punishment he's been evading. I mean, you talk about justice in the end. Yes, it's it's quite and he's quite in prison astonishing. today. He's and he's still, still there. In prison today. Mm-hmm. Now another matter I'm curious about your opinion on, and this one got me quite a bit of heat. Michael Jackson, the King of Pop. Yeah. I always felt he did some wrongdoing in his life. There's lots of red flags in my opinion. However, oh, I he, I, yeah, I think he loved children a bit excessively. I think people are deluded in the magic of one Michael Jackson. Yeah, it, it just well, totally, it just totally clouded people's judgment. Sure, but look, look, something was terribly wrong with the guy. I mean, you know, when he made Thriller, he had a great look, you know, right? Uh, but then he persisted this this uh, plastic surgery. Apparently wanting to make himself look like a Diana Ross, that he thought she was the most beautiful person in the world. He wanted to look like her. Well, this is a, you know, signs of being demented. Right. He also does. I'm relatively convinced this is subjectively more than objective, but I think there's enough objective evidence to make it a very reasonable presumption that he was engaged in pedophilia there were echoes that he was involved in uh some sort of child trafficking ring now well, i don't you know I, you he know had that, he had that uh right what did he call it uh his land his playland uh wasn't fantasy land oh the neverland uh, ranch neverland neverland very good neverland that was it yeah mm-hmm. i mean and, it, you know this is a it's this possible is a magnet it's like comet ping pong you see they claim it's a it's a family friendly and they have ping pong. It sounds like some kids like to do you know combine pizza with ping pong, and, and, and then it, it it turns out that uh, Sophia Smallstorm, who did this brilliant work on on Sandy Hook, uh, suggested I should go to the Comet Ping Pong website and check out a, a, a friend of Comet Ping Pong called Heavy Breathing. Oh my God! <laughs> heavy so I go breathing. to Heavy Breathing and I find all these virtually obscene. Uh, drawings, you know, uh, the, the 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 mildest, well, one of which is a naked man crawling over what looks like the text of heavy breathing in some kind of printed out format. Mm. And then there's another of a man bending over and you see a very vivid diagram of his anal aperture with his member hanging down and something leaking from it. Then there's another where uh, 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 two naked women are kissing men that are wrapped up like mummies. I mean, th- th- there's another of a woman with her legs spread, except the genitalia are suppressed, and you see the helmet of some weird-looking creature coming up. I I had no sooner made copies of those and went back to to show how I got into it than they disappeared. Interesting. They just disappeared into thin air. Wow. They knew I was there. 
Now that brings. But I made copies of them and I've oh. included them in presentations I've made. That's smart of you. Yes, got to make copies of, of certain things you just gotta in case. Do that. You got to know how to do this to yeah. capture images, and you know you. It, you it's want to important. capture them right when you first notice them, because otherwise you go and you're distracted by something else. You forget to come back. So you got to do it being right then. Right. So this brings us to our next order of business here, and that's with Megan Kelly interviewing Alex Jones. Many networks out there, well, smaller networks that front NBC, uh, Connecticut is one of them. They won't be airing uh, the interview. Okay. On Sunday. Well, completely, they've completely redone the interview. So what's, what's interesting about this is that Alex was taping Megan when she was soft-soaping him about doing it and saying, you know, Correct. this is yes. going to be a hit piece, and I stand by my word. If I'm known for anything, it's that I keep my word. And, you know, basically telling him we're not going to try and make you look bad, also saying how fascinating she finds Alex, how she'd like to have stakes with Alex. I heard that. I don't yes. know quite how we're supposed to read that, but that she became interested when he went through his divorce, that, you know, that she just decided he was no longer a one-dimensional, but now a multi-dimensional guy, and she wanted to cover him. But it's very clear from the trailer when they promoted it, they wanted to do a hit piece on Alex for suggesting that Sandy Hook was a hoax, which, of course, I and my colleagues have proven. I mean, this isn't just a matter of opinion. This is no theory. This is a fact. This is the re Sandy Hook reality. It was an elaborate hoax. The school was closed by 2008. It was loaded with asbestos and other biohazards damaged by a hurricane. They had to decide whether or not to remodel the school to make it compliant with state and federal requirements for Americans with Disability Act, which would have meant making all the entrances and accesses, uh, access routes wheelchair accessible, remodeling the bathrooms and all that. It was a decrepit school. It was built like around 1952. It was in terrible condition, terrible condition. We have videos inside and out. It was being used for storage. There were no students there. So, you know, this is not a matter of debate. In fact, when I first published the book, which has 13 contributors, including six current or retired Ph.D. college professor, proving that it was closed, proving there were no students there, proving there was no case, proving the forensic study conducted by state's attorney uh, Sandusky, Stephen Sandusky, never established a causal nexus tying together the alleged shooter with the weapons he's supposed to have used and the, and the victims. For example, the 22 caliber rifle with which he's supposed to have shot his mother had no fingerprints. There was one reported print from some felon from some other state that I heard was just suppressed. But get this, they had 150 slugs from the school rooms, they claimed. But in a significant footnote, the most important in the whole work, it says they could not match any of the 150 slugs to the weapon, this, uh, you know, Bushmaster he was supposed to have used, which means there's no way to tie him to the weapons or the victims, not only that, but, of course, the victims appear to be fabrications anyway. We had noticed, as we explained in the book, that they seemed to be wearing clothing that was out of date, about 10 years out of date for kids in elementary schools. At the time of 2012, these events occurred. And we've, we, we have been able to confirm what was going on there. We found a video of one of the decedents attending his own funeral. But we also took the most interesting of them all, Noah Posner, who not only died at Sandy Hook on uh, 14 December 2012, but again in Pakistan on 16 December 2014, where Kelly Watt, 
who had 100 hours with a conversation with his purported father, Lenny Posner, told him she didn't believe he had a son. She didn't believe he died. She, 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 he asked, uh, she asked him for a birth certificate, whatever. Inadvisedly, he sent her a copy of a death certificate mm. that turned out to be a fabrication. The bottom half of a real death certificate, the top half of a fake, doesn't even have a file number has the wrong estimated time of death at 11 a.m. when the shooting took place between 9.30 and 9.35. Well, well, Kelly, with her keen eye, also noticed there was a striking resemblance between these photos of Noah Posner, of which we have quite a few, none past six years old, presumably, when he died, right? right. And it, the, the fellow who's supposed to be his older stepbrother, stepbrother, therefore not ge genetically or only partially genetically related, by the name of uh, Michael Vabner. And we did multiple studies. We got a half a dozen involved in doing this research because Kelly had shown photos of them both to friends, and they said, oh, yeah, that's that's the same guy. This Michael Vabner is Noah Posner all grown up. And we did a study, and we discovered, yes, they created Noah Posner out of childhood photographs of Michael Vabner. Now, I'm glad you brought up uh, Posner here, and I'm curious now what's going on with um – Mr. Wolfgang Halbig and Lenny Posner, I know there was some sort of case going on. Do you have an update for us? Well, yes, I do, because Lenny Posner at the preliminary hearings three times did not show up. He was a no-show three different he, days. He no-showed? He no-showed. Wow. This was a suit he was bringing against uh, Wolfgang, to which Wolfgang was responding, which led to Wolfgang getting discovery. So now Wolfgang has been fairly aggressive in going about discovery. Wolfgang, independently, by the way, had had done some very good things already. For example, uh, during hearings uh, uh, under oath in relation to his the state's failure to comply with his freedom for information request, right? Uh, uh, obtained testimony from Patricia Lalorda, who's the first select man of Newtown, which is a position equivalent to the mayor, who denied that the sign "Everyone Must Check In" had been put there by the town. During further questioning, asked who put it there, said Homeland Security, which is most interesting because Homeland Security wasn't supposed to have anything to do with this. So that's my nice corroboration of the fact that it was a FEMA drill, a two-day FEMA drill, with a rehearsal on the 13th going live on the 14th, where many of the participants became confused and put up donation websites on the 13th. Uh, the day before, and even Adam Lanza, who appears to be a completely fictional character, by the way, where we have, for example, in the book, which you can download for free, 50 photographs of them furnishing an empty house to serve as the Adam Lanza home, where you can see his Adam's purported bedroom made up neat, made up messy. They hadn't decided yet how they wanted to present it, but notice from a forensic point of view, when you go to the house where he resided, you take photographs of the room as it was at the time, which cannot be both messy and neat. I mean, you know, I'm talking about even the bed being made versus the bed being unmade. I mean, this is just ridiculous. And we we have uh, been able to establish uh, also a whole number of photographs of the school inside and out were obtained by, by uh, Wolfgang. Uh, I think he, he, he had initially got into it in the first freedom – one of the first freedom of information requests he had that was denied or not responded to was simply information about who delivered the porta potties. Wow. Because we got this, yeah, we got this situation where 
uh, there was the sign I mentioned everyone must check in and write in the manual, by the way, which I published as Appendix A to the book. It says everyone must check in. We had we had boxes of bottled water and pizza cartons at the firehouse, but it's standard for a FEMA drill that they provide fresh refreshments and restrooms because porta potties were already present from scratch. Many were wearing name tags on lanyards, and parents were bringing children to the scene. Well, no parents going to bring a child to the scene of an actual child shooting massacre. I mean, that would be loopy in the extreme. But these name tags on lanyards—that's how they do a FEMA drill. Everyone's got a name tag on a lanyard and it's color-coded to show the role you play. It was also true that there was no surge of EMTs into the building, no medevac helicopter was called, no string of ambulances to the school to rush the little bodies off to hospitals where they could be pronounced dead or alive. Uh, I mean, get this, not even the parents were allowed to see the children's bodies. It was done using photographs, which, of course, is because there were no bodies. All they had was photographs. It's so, a, it's a know, really strange I mean, all this fits thing. Together in such a way, we've have I mentioned before that we even have 50 photographs of them refurbishing the school to serve as a stage for this elaborate event. I don't believe so. Really? Well, well, yeah. I mean, I'm looking right now at a photograph, which is the the, the piece de resistance of the SWAT team already there. Just above the top of the SWAT team vehicle, you can see there are drawings in a string of four windows in classroom 10 that are undamaged. These are drawings of candles that were undamaged. The flag is at full mass. You come down the flag, there's a familiar face leaning against a wall with his arms folded, awaiting the arrival of his portable mortuary tent. That's Wayne Carver, the medical examiner. There's crime scene tape up for a crime that is yet to be committed. We also published photographs of the windows before and after, so you can see how they're shot at after to confirm this was before. We have photos of the perps drilling holes to simulate gunshots in the window frame, and another where you have pink rods inserted into the holes, and all the rods are parallel with one another, 90 degrees to the window frame. I used to supervise marksmanship training at Edson Range when I was a series commander, at the Marine Corps Recruit Depot in San Diego with 15 DIs and 300 recruits under my command. Anyone who thinks this is real shooting is just fantasizing. I mean, this is just ridiculous. It turned out we initially thought this was this photograph was taken the morning of the 14th, but actually it was taken the evening of the 13th, the night before. So, you know, I mean, if you want proof that the whole thing was an elaborate hoax, there it is. If you want to see... The evidence we have about Michael Vabner and and uh, Noah Posner being childhood photos of Michael Vabner go to on my blog. Just do a search on Sandy Hook Charade. Sandy Hook Charade. Noah Posner was Michael Vabner as a child, and you'll have it right there. I mean, it's just stunning. And this Lenny Posner has the nerve to go after other people. I mean, he creates quite a ruckus. He gets all kinds of attention when the guy's a monster fraud. These people made out like bandits. The the 26 imposter families have split between 27 and $130 million donated by sympathetic but gullible Americans. That's over a million dollars per family. I'm convinced that a reason Lenny is so intent that this not be revealed as a, a... as a hoax is because he may have to return the million dollars and might even be prosecuted for fraud. The school district, which gave up the school back in uh, 2008 because they couldn't afford to upgrade it, 
received a $50 million grant to build a new school at Sandy Hook, which has long since been done. Yeah. I looked into the matter at the time, and for an elementary through fourth grade school, as was Sandy Hook, it's only $7 million across country. So they got seven times $7 million to to put up a new school at Sandy Hook. And guess what? Those who were involved in the destruction of the old school had to sign lifetime gag orders. Mm. Against revealing anything they saw or did not see at the school, which would have included no blood on the floor, no pockmarks in the walls from bullets that weren't fired. Wasn't there also Facebook pages um, that were published before the incident took place? (coughs) Well, I think you mean, yeah, donation, donation sites. Yes, donation sites, right. (coughs) And that's completely correct. I got a bit of a frog in my throat here. No worries. <coughs> yes, yes I, you're 100% correct. Have you ever... And, and even, and I may have mm-hmm. mentioned, even Adam Lanza's date of death was initially recorded in the Social Security Death Index as having occurred on the 13th, making his feet and shooting 20 kids and six adults the following day all the more remarkable. Yeah, the Sandy Hook incident is, is very fascinating. We are basically swimming in a sea of um, inconsistencies. Here's here's another. Uh, this is a website I took a frame from it. Sandy Hook Kid Alive, spotted at funeral. But it includes a photograph where you got, let's see, you got three girls who are teenagers and two two older adults, then a, another teenager, then a teenage boy, then another woman. And below, there are three young girls and a young boy when they're about six years of age. And what they've done is Photoshop in the photos of them, the three young girls and the young boy at the bottom, and then you see the actual three girls now on the top left and him on the right. I mean, they're just pulling our chain, right? Put it right in our face. Right. And, Jim, by the way, have you been harassed by any of the alleged parents of the Sandy Hook massacre? Oh, no, no. It's fascinating. No, no one's tried to, you know, lodge a lawsuit or a protest, whatnot. Lenny Posner at one time wrote me about my website, and I wrote back very forcefully about how, you know, it was uh, fascinating to encounter. How did I put it? I think I have a copy of it somewhere. You know, the, 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 a liar and fraud, you know, who've been deceiving the world about this. In other words, I let him have it, made right. it clear I wasn't going to cooperate in any way, shape, or form with him. I mean, I would be glad to have the opportunity to take him on. Now, this is the irony about the Megan Kelly, Alex Jones situation, because mm-hmm. Alex insists that he actually believes the kids were killed at Sandy Hook. So Megan, to have the right target, should be coming after me. But, you know, the case is so well documented that nobody died at Sandy Hook. I mean, nobody's going to come after me. I mean, Amazon was able to ban it because they can do that willy-nilly. It turns out that Jay Carvey who was a White House spokesman, had gone to Amazon as a senior vice president. And he and, he and Jeff Bezos, I'm sure, made the decision that this book was too hot. It went on sale 22 October 2015. It sold nearly 500 copies in less than a month when it was banned on the 19th of November. And in the meanwhile, I'd been contacted by the TV program Inside Edition. Oh, my. Yeah, well, they were claiming they wanted to do a story about what we discovered about Sandy Hook, but they wanted to do a pre-interview. And the next oh, thing yes. I know, I'm in what I'm convinced is a basement at Langley, and I'm being interrogated by someone. You know, what's the evidence you got? What's the best evidence? What's the best evidence? Over and over, and I laid it out, I laid it out, I laid it out, you know, one evidence after another. 
apparently it decided it was too much and they had to ban the book. So that appears to have been the process for vetting what we had to decide whether or not to ban it. That's pretty wild. I I immediately released it as a a PDF for free. I was going on the show that night by coincidence with Jeff Rents, and Mm -hmm. I could see this was all totally politically political. If I tried to fight it with Amazon, they'd run me in circles. So I just released it for free as a PDF. Yeah, smart of you. And I'm just kind of taken back that Amazon would actually do that. But then again, I'm not surprised because we, we truly don't know Who's paying these people? Well, now my first two books were for Moonrock Books. Nobody died at Sandy Hook and what was supposed to be its sequel. And I suppose we didn't go to the moon either was a series editor. Mike Palachek suggested as a great title to follow. Nobody died at Sandy Hook because you hear that and you say, yeah, right. And I suppose we didn't go to the moon either. (laughs) Yes. But of course, we didn't go to the moon either. But get this, they've now banned that book, too. It Did was, they really? Yeah, but they wow. caught up. It's because it covers five different to- – it covers not only the moon landing, and they didn't ban it for that. and Not the death and replacement of Paul McCartney, which, believe it or not, strikes nearly as strong emotional resistance in the public as does Sandy Hook. Not the first death of Saddam Hussein, who was actually taken out on the 7th of April, 2003, by a B-1 bomber strike in a – restaurant on the outskirts of Baghdad, where he was there with his two sons and 50 or 60 members of the general Gar- <coughs> general staff, not on the second death of Osama bin Laden, because he actually died on 15 December 2001, was buried in an unmarked grave in Afghanistan, uh, where Obama resurrected him 10 years later to conduct the completely fake raid in Pakistan. But because I also have four chapters on the end of World War II challenging the official story about the the concentration camps, which turn out not to be centers for extermination, but labor camps, where they actually were using Zyklon B to kill body lice in order to maintain the health and, 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 and vigor of the inmates, because you can't get any work out of a corpse. In fact, I, there's so much in there. I was astonished to discover in a book by Nick Kohlerstrom uh, entitled Breaking the Spell, a photograph of the U.K. soccer team at Auschwitz. And these guys look so healthy, so vigorous, so proud of their soccer team that I put a photo, that photograph on the back cover of, and I suppose we didn't go to the moon either. Mm. So they wiped out hundreds of titles that challenged the official narrative of the Holocaust, hundreds of them. Just wholesale. I mean, it's just outrageous. You know, what, what is it about the Holocaust that should, should make us have to accept its truth when there's so much evidence that indicates it's false? Well, it's, Jim, you, you can't talk about Israel. Remember that. That's right. That's right. That's right. You can't talk about Israel. It turns out there are 236 references to 6 million Jews in dire straits or fear of loss of their lives. Before the Nuremberg Tribunals beginning in 1890, 1890, I do presentation. I just show you one article after another after another using the word six million. Turns out it has no empirical basis whatsoever, no historical basis, but is derivative of a disputed passage in Leviticus that's been interpreted as meaning that the chosen people can return to the promised land only when they're minus six million who have been consumed in the flames. But even that requires an interpolation because there was no word in the original Hebrew for six million. 
So this is mythology. This is theology. This is religious belief. It has nothing to do with history or science. In fact, more Catholics than Jews died at Auschwitz. The, the International Committee of the Red Cross was keeping meticulous records for all of these camps. And for all of those who died, their age, their sex, their race, their nationality, their religion, in, in 1993, they recalibrated their total numbers and found that altogether from all the camps combined, the deaths included 296,081, not one of whom died from being put to death in a gas chamber. It's really, really crazy stuff here that we've been lied to for so long. Yeah, well, it's part of the Jewish uh, political movement to, you know, play the victim card. That the, the Jews are immune from criticism because they've been victimized. But it's the rest of the world that's been played for suckers and saps. There was no basis for it, not historically, uh, not scientifically. In fact, studies have been conducted in the in the uh, in the chambers where delousing was taking place using Zyklon B, which is a mild form of cyanide. Yes. And the fact is it causes discoloration of the chambers. They turn dark blue. And that the bodies that die from cyanide, by the way, turn pink. But we don't have reports of piles of pink bodies. And the only chambers that turn blue were those where they were doing the delousing. In fact, there was a a trial of a very famous guy in Canada named uh, Ernst Zundel, uh, who denied the Holocaust. He was put on trial for it. And the trial took place in two steps in 1985 and 1988, which Robert Forasson has documented. So you can go online and look for the Zundel trials, 1985 and 1988. During the first stage in 1985, the prosecution was unable to produce a single witness, not one witness, who could testify <coughs> to having seen anyone put to death in a gas chamber. Not one. More interestingly, even in 1988, an American expert on gas chambers by the name of Fred Lochter reported on his study of the facilities there traveling to Europe, making measurements, taking samples and so forth, came back with a voluminous study where he's the leading expert on gas chambers in the United States to report that none of those facilities could possibly have served as gas chambers. Yes. Now, Jim, I'm I'm just taken back that you still have not been harassed by anyone or any group uh, about any of these these topics that we have been discussing here on the program. Well, I think the answer lies in the fact that as a professional scholar, I do my homework. Oh, yes. I mean, I won't address any of these subjects until I've sorted them out and I bring together the best experts in areas where I myself am not, such as David Manick is an expert on interpreting x-rays. Bob Living is an expert on the human brain, an expert on wound ballistics. Charles Crenshaw, a physician who was actually present in Trauma Room 1 when JFK's moribund body was brought in two days later, was responsible for the care and treatment of his alleged assassin. I've done this in every one of these cases. I bring in experts. When I did the book on Sandy Hook, I brought together, you know, 13 experts, one of whom... Dr. Eelwin, who maintains the Fellowship of the Minds website, had published 80 articles on Sandy Hook before I selected the best of the best for inclusion in the book. I myself had already published 30 articles on Sandy Hook before I put it together. You know, I got work by James Tracy, who had the first really serious academic study of Sandy Hook about the press conference held by Wayne Carver, where he doesn't know how many are boys, how many are girls. 
says they were all shot three to 11 times, which is faintly ridiculous, frankly. And, and says in the middle of the press conference, he hoped this whole thing doesn't come crashing down on the people of Newtown, which is a very peculiar thing to say. By the way, you might not know this, but I'm a listener of yours. I have been for quite some time. You do a fantastic job. You have your own style and you do your homework. Like I said, I've always admired that about you, Jim. And, uh, you know, one thing I, I do have to mention here about harassment and all that sort of thing. I had um, given a link to our interview to a friend of mine who had joined some sort of, I think it was some sort of podcast Facebook group, and yeah. he, he posted our interview there, and oh my goodness, the, the soccer moms went ballistic. <laughs> uh, apparently, apparently one of the women involved in, in, this, in this Facebook group, um, she had interviewed one of the alleged parents of one of the alleged victims, and oh. she went on a tyrant uh, on Facebook there and actually got my friend banned from the Facebook page for posting our interview. Well, isn't that ridiculous? But she didn't come after me, to my knowledge. No. I mean, you know, I get occasional comments and skepticism and attacks online, of course, which I, right. in general, patiently respond by saying, would you please, if you think I have something wrong, please be specific to Cite what I said and why I said it, and then explain what I have wrong and how you know, and point out that my work is collaborative. So it's, you know, I'm not just representing my own point of view, although I, of course, take responsibility for everything I say during any interview I give, but just observing that, you know, I'm benefiting from the collaborative contributions of many different scholars. I mean, it, it, Virtually all of these books of mine have a dozen or more contributors who are experts on different aspects of each of the cases addressed. Yeah, it's all good stuff. You, you do a great job covering all these subjects. And, Jim, on a side note here, on this program, I also talk about other other subjects that are in the, the realms of the paranormal and, and UFOs. I don't think I've ever heard you talk about anything like that before. Do you have any opinion on those two taboo subjects. Well, I'm open to it. At one point, I was about to undertake a uh, delving into UFOs. And, of course, we all know there are plenty of UFOs. Those are just unidentified flying objects. Right. The question is whether any of them have extraterrestrial origin. Correct. And I, I have friends who have dealt with this far more extensively than have I who assure me that it's the case. But the fact of the matter is that I've never been in the position – I mean, I, I had a dozen books here in a stack right in front of the desk where I'm talking to you now on the floor for the next project when something came up that distracted my attention. I don't remember what it was, but it just got me swept away from that, and I've never been able to return to it. I'm, I'll just say I'm open-minded to it. I do believe that the um, – majestic document about the Roswell crash by Vannevar Bush. That appears to me to be completely authentic. So I don't have, uh, you know, I, I, it's not that I'm a skeptic. It's that I just haven't done my homework sufficiently to go further than what I've just said. Understood. I'm, I'm just curious because I've never heard you talk about that before, and I'm glad you addressed that. It's, it's quite interesting. Um, are there any other subjects that you are interested in that you haven't really shared with anyone before? 
Well, I'm always, you know, looking for cases where the government may be trying to pull the wool over our eyes. I mean, that's what drew me into JFK. I think you asked this way back when, yes. but I didn't answer it very directly. It's okay. It was this. Mm-hmm. Uh, once I returned from the Far East, I began, you know, reading books on JFK, but I, I, I wasn't uh, pursuing it in a serious fashion. It, it was only after the release of Oliver Stone's film that I was just lying in bed and drinking a cup of coffee, reading the paper, when my wife came in, flipped on the TV and said, you're not going to believe this. And I found a very distinguished looking man standing behind a lectern with a logo of the AMA attacking everyone who'd ever done serious research on JFK, uh, including Charles Crenshaw, who had at that point published a book called Conspiracy of Silence, explained how all the physicians at Parkland had been instructed that their careers would be in jeopardy if they were to talk about what had happened in trauma room number one. And Oliver Stone calling the film docu-fiction, well, I mean, I knew the film was a masterpiece, and while Oliver didn't have everything right, he thought, for example, there were only three hit teams when there, by my count, were at least six and possibly seven. Uh, he thought the Zapruder film was authentic, which, of course, it's not, as I've explained. And he didn't realize Oswald was in the doorway, even though his film revolves around Jim Garrison, who did hold that belief. But it was obvious to me this guy, who turned out to be the editor-in-chief of the Journal of the AMA, was abusing his position. I already had a, a lot of experience in editing. I was an associate editor for 10 years of a very famous international journal named Synthes for mm. epistemology, methodology, and the philosophy of science. I would have found and edit solo, be the editor-in-chief of a Minds and Machines for for Artificial Intelligence, Philosophy, and Cognitive Science, where I put together what there was unanimous agreement was the best editorial board any journal ever had in in the history of philosophy in in its areas. And and I'd done a lot of editorial work, members of editorial boards. It was obvious to me this editor-in-chief was abusing his position for political purposes. And I remember how clearly it occurred to me that if someone of his stature and position was going to abuse his his uh, a journal for political purposes, perhaps some of us with special backgrounds and abilities ought to become involved. Because I had a PhD in the history and the philosophy of science. I was an expert on scientific reasoning. I've done all this work on logic. I'm an expert in methodology. You know, uh, so that I followed the developments with regard to the journal. And when a letter to the editor appeared complaining about the abuse of the journal, uh, expressing sentiments very similar to mine, I reached out to the author suggesting we collaborate on a long article or a book. And his name was David W. Mantic, and we went from there. Understood. Understood. And also, I'm curious, Jim, what kind of music do you listen to if you listen to music at all? Oh, yeah, I love music, yeah. Well, I'm actually, you know, I mean, if you want to, you know, my my favorite of all time are the Beatles. Ah, nice. Yeah, well, it's interesting because then when this business came up about Paul, you know, it's like with regard to the planes on 9-11. I founded Scholars for 9-11 Truth in December of 2005. I invited Steve Jones to be my co-chair at the suggestion of David Ray Griffin, who's the dean of 9-11 studies. But by June of uh, 2006, I was already convinced that the theory that Jones was advocating of nanothermite couldn't cut it. I mean, literally couldn't cut it, meaning 
couldn't the nanothermite is too feeble and explosive to have been responsible for blowing apart the twin towers and um why did i slip onto that the the thing with paul oh i know judy wood and morgan reynolds badgered me for a year and a half to take seriously the idea that real planes had not hit the twin towers and I put it off because it sounded to me just too fantastic to be true. But it took a year and a half of badgering to get me to look at the evidence. And today I'm probably the most prominent spokesman for the no planes theory, which means that none of the four commercial carriers involved in 9-11 on the official account actually crashed on 9-11. Flight 93 didn't crash in Shanksville. Flight 77 didn't hit the Pentagon. Flight 11 didn't hit the North Tower. Flight 175 didn't didn't uh, hit the south and in fact if you go to Gary King YouTube channel just scroll down and you'll see I have a recent 2 hour presentation on that as well which will lay out all the evidence but the reason I draw the parallel is this in relation to my shows you know and I was doing well I had a lot of I've had 6 or 7 I don't know maybe more radio shows by now one one radio show I had 880 shows before I went to video, that was the real deal. And you, you, you can still find it at, at uh, radiofetzer.blogspot.com. It's been gradually updated, but you got all 880 shows. And then since I went video, you've got other shows that are being there. It's maintained by a colleague of mine. But uh, Claire Coon, who was someone I learned of and invited to speak at Vancouver to represent Judy Wood's views because Judy Wood refused to do it, wouldn't even respond you, you to should have, you, you should have seen the email she wrote to me. She asked me about 100 questions um, in regards to why I wanted her on the show. Really? Yes. I'm, you know what? I'm going to have to send you a copy of that. Because well, it's very peculiar, but Judy it, turns out to be a very nasty piece of work, especially if you really, consider It's really weird, that email. I, I still have it, and I might have to show you it. It's just I began. I interviewed her for the first wow. time on 11 November 2006, and it appears to have had a direct contribution to shattering scholars because Steve Jones was so upset. At my considering theories alternative to nanothermite, that he and Kevin Ryan and others split away from scholars and founded a new group called Scholars for 9-11 Truth and Justice, which has published a lot of nonsense on right. a lot of different scores. I I'm recall them. They have a journal. Mm -hmm. I told Steve when he founded the Journal of 9-11 Studies, of which I was originally going to be the managing editor, that the key to the journal was the editorial board, that he had to have individuals of impeccable credentials. And he didn't do it. He, he got a lot of his buddies and friends, people really of no particular standing, and they published a lot of rubbish in there. They've got a lot of articles claiming that a real plane hit the Pentagon, for example. I mean, this is ludicrous. I have done so much on this, and we don't have time to go into it now. But go to... Uh, Gary King YouTube channel and just scroll down. It's about the sixth from the top or the eighth from the top. Two hours comprehensive on 9-11. Some people told me they thought it was the best coverage of 9-11 they've seen yet. And I'm not saying it couldn't be exceeded. I'm just saying I put together everything I have from all the sources, you know, and I'm collaborating with a lot of very good people to make it the most comprehensive presentation available. So oh, yes. check that out. You do a, a damn is, good the job. The point is, yeah, Judy refused uh, to even correspond. I, I interviewed her 15 different times, believe it or not. Uh, and we would I was pioneering going to a website using the computer in combination with radio. So we'd go to her website 
and go through articles and diagrams she had on her website. Well, we discussed it 15 times. Well, the 15th time, which I think was mid-2008, she appeared with John Hutchison. And because Hutchison, you know, has claims about having made these fantastic discoveries and right. collage, mm-hmm. you know, with working with junk that, that really are in the area of one of the most complex uh, uh, categories of physics, electromagnetism, that I asked John what I thought was an innocuous question about his background and training. And he sloughed it off. He said he flunked crayons and coloring books, and Judy thought that was hilarious and laughed. But I thought it was, you know, completely inappropriate. I, I didn't pursue it. I just went to another. But, I mean, I thought that was really odd. It is really that odd. Was when Judy went respond, she, since that time, she's not responded to any email from me, though she and her underlings have attacked me many times. Oh, yes. and this on, brings, Online, online. Yes, yeah. and, and this brings yeah. me to one more. Uh, order of business here, and that is one with Rebecca Roth, uh, another woman that I was going to bring on to the program. And once she found out, uh, I don't know personally if if she, if this was her thing, but um, someone else spoke for her and said, if you had Jim on your program, she's never going to be on your show. (laughs) And I just thought, well, what what the hell? What what did I do? Instrumental in exposing her. She was never even an airline stewardess. Yeah, you, you know, guys, I, I mean, I have a story. I've, right. I've got three or four blogs about Rebecca online. Anyone wants to go, Jim, just just do uh, jimfetzer.blogspot.com, comma, Rebecca Roth, and you'll have three very illuminating studies. She did make a valuable contribution, however, by she suggesting sure. that this Israeli group of Israeli art students known as the Gelatin Group, who had the run of the towers, may have made a contribution you know, to what was going on there. They may have been involved in prepping the buildings to create the gashes on the side, which Judy always described as cartoon cutouts, you know. You know, like I, the, I, I, don't, I don't dislike her, by the way, Jim. I, I just, I, you know, I don't really press too many guests on this program too hard, but I, yeah. I was really going to press her on a number of issues, and I have a feeling someone caught word of that and um, yeah, probably, yeah, probably notified her. Judy will never come on. But here's the deal. Judy and, and Morgan Rails pressed me for a year and a half. Oh, I already explained that. And then I got around to no plane theory. Well, Claire was pressing me about Paul having died in 1966 and replaced by another musician. Mm. And she she has a huge long blog about it, the title of which is, I think, uh, we, we Can Know Sometimes, meaning sometimes we can figure these things out and know what actually happened. And she had this doodle by John of showing what might be Paul with a fractured skull and all this. And, you know, interesting stuff. But I really became convinced there was something to it when I ran across the study in Italian Wired, the Italian language version of Wired magazine by two Italian scientists who set out to disprove the hypothesis. In other words, they set out to prove that that, that Paul after 9-11-1966 was the same Paul as before, where the, the Paul after is now usually referred to as fall for fake or false Paul, fall versus Paul. What they actually proved was they're two different people. They have different teeth, different palates. Paul had bad teeth and a narrow palate. Paul has good teeth and a wide palate. They have different size and shape heads. Paul's was very round. Falls larger and oval. Paul is substantially taller by about four inches. We have photos of Paul with Jane Asher, to whom he was engaged. They're about the same height. We have photos of Paul with Jane Asher. He towers over her. 
you know, this convinced me that they really were two different people, and that's what got me going on it, so that um, when uh, a, a, an article appeared that some people thought was just fake, uh, where Ringo is confessing, we replaced Paul, you know, right. that he had died, and, and they had to decide what to do about the band, and they, 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 they had a musician who actually says was almost as good as Paul, that they used temporarily, and then he was so good they decided to keep him on. He was almost as good as Paul. He's actually much better. And I've now done a, quite a lot about this. And uh, Nick Kohlerstrom, incidentally, is also interested in that subject, published a book about the life and death of Paul McCartney. And uh, I've done interviews with the, with the best photographs we have. I gave a recent presentation to the Free Your Mind conference uh, that took place in April in New Jersey, where I did, uh, you know, several cases of identity involving. L let me recollect. I've got, I've got it here. I'll pull it up. But I did, I did, uh, I did Noah Posner, you know, showing that there's a fakery with Noah Posner. I did Hillary Clinton, who's been using body doubles ever since she, you know, ever since she collapsed at that 9/11. They've been using body doubles. You know, I was going to ask you about that, and it just totally slipped my mind. Um, remembering what Alex Jones was telling Megyn Kelly about the chimeras, and I was thinking, you know, that's all interesting enough, or interesting to uh, begin a good uh, interview with that topic. However. One of the important things is human cloning, which is something that hasn't really been talked about very much. It's something that is kept quiet about for some odd reason. Well, but bear in mind, there's a common misconception about cloning as though you get someone who's just like the person you want to clone. It doesn't work that way. You get the same DNA. Yeah. And you get the same it's DNA. A, that, it's that, a little that, bit more complex. Effort, but you'd have to go through the same life experiences over the same period of time to mature to be equal to the person you're cloning. So if, if Hillary's 60 now, you clone her, you get somebody that in 60 years, if they had similar experiences, would be like Hillary. So what we're talking about are the uses of body doubles that aren't clones. These are simply the people that look a lot like her. Uh, but if you if you know you know do a close up comparison you can falsify that it's the same person as we've done again and again. Oh yeah, and then I did a thing about PizzaGate. So I did uh, I did uh, Sandy Hook with uh, with Noah Posner and being you know photos of Michael Vabner as a child, Hillary's body doubles, and then Paul McCartney's replacement by Billy Shears. Actually, his name was William Shepard. The nickname was Billy Shears. And he's actually a better musician than Paul, believe it or not. So, I mean, this is a fascinating story. If you, if you can get when the Free Your Mind conference is put out by uh, Bob Tuscan, Bob Tuscan organized a conference. It's going to be out sometime within the next six or eight weeks, I'm going to guess, maybe sooner. Then you can get, you know, my presentation where I did all of those about the Sandy Hook and uh, Hillary's body doubles, Paul McCartney. And Pizzagate, you know, I think a lot of your listeners would probably like what I do there. Oh, yes. I think they would find it very fascinating. A lot of these topics we've had talked about are completely fascinating. And, yes, body doubles, we, we've heard yeah. of plenty of that. Uh, Pablo Escobar, another one who had plenty of body doubles during his time. Yeah. And, and Bob Tuscan gave me an hour and a half, so I had more time, you know, to, to do it than the usual 50 minutes to an hour that one typically has. But in any case, um, Claire was right. 
And now I've done a great deal of work on it, you know, uh, and I do presentations on it just as I've sketched there. I don't know if you want to squeeze one more word in edgewise or two because my wife is it's yes. a, 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 yes, it's approaching 1 a.m. here. Man. Right, I know. Getting late here, and, and we've been having yeah. such a great time here. And well, of course, it's a real pleasure. I think you're a great host, and you're very knowledgeable, and I, I like it. Oh, thank you very much. Coming from you, it, it means a lot, as I am a fan of yours, and you know, I, I've gotten quite a bit of praise since our first interview. People really enjoyed the chemistry we have between each other, and I have to say we we, do, we both do a pretty damn good job here. Well, I think it's because we both do homework. You know, I mean, that, that's oh, a, yes. the reason why these people aren't attacking me is because they know what they're up against, and there wouldn't be much of a point. Uh, just as I, you know, regularly when I'm attacked online, I simply go directly for what evidence do you have that I have anything wrong. And it's almost invariable that they have nothing to say in response. In others, these are generalized smears of the kind that Judy Wood has begun engaging in. My goodness, and, yes. I have a couple chapters about her in the book, America Nuked on 9-11, also at moonrockbooks.com. In fact, you're your guests might find it uh, useful just to visit the website to see if there's anything there that uh, interests them because I'm really seeking to do thorough, detailed, meticulous research, taking conspiracy theories from theories in the weak sense of conjectures, rumors, or guesses to theories in the strong sense of empirically testable explanatory hypotheses to determine the difference between the true and the false. Right. You you like to be backed by the facts. Yes. Well, by evidence, yes, research science, really, really science. I mean, my whole dedication is to science as the most reliable method for discovering the truth. And when there's so many scams being perpetrated, you know, by the government, the people have been played so massively. JFK and 9-11 are the biggest but, you know, Sandy Hook, the Boston bombing, San Bernardino, where we even have the Craigslist ad for extras. Right. With, you know, good pay, you know, food and transportation, call date December 1st, going live the December 2nd. Some speaking roles. Oh, yes. If Orlando, Dallas, Orlando, my God, the license for the club expired in 2013. It only had a legal occupancy of 150. There are only 11 parking spaces there, none for handicapped. If there had been uh, 50 people killed and 53 injured, there would have been abandoned cars all over the place. They weren't there. A resident near the area told me that it's not even a gay club. The Orlando Emergency Medical Center is not billing anyone for anything because they didn't render any services when the last time you heard of a hospital not charging for a Band-Aid. <laughs> yeah. They had a lot of really incompetent, phony crisis actors. I mean, it was Jokesville 100%. Believe it or not, they even put out two musicals, Dance Orlando Dance, one of which involves a couple, some dressed up as nurses and doctors, others cops and, you know, Officers of the law, they're ridiculous. That's scandalous. Ridiculous. That is scandalous. Well, it's absurd. It really is. And, Jim, I, I want to thank you so much for being a part of the program. And I do want to leave you with the final word, any any positive message that you can um, you can relay here for the listeners out there. And, you know, I, I have to say and ask you this, who the hell can we actually trust, Jim? I know, I know. Well, that's one of the good signs, actually. The ma mainstream media is in decline. The New York Times has even had to advertise. It's the first time in my lifetime that the New York Times has had to advertise. 
it's becoming increasingly widely understood why it deserves how I describe it as the Langley newsletter. The Washington Post has all but discredited itself. Uh, CNN and MSNBC are simply two different versions of the CIA's line. I can't believe the voluminous, nonstop, 24-7 lies emanating from both of those. And I even include what some people would regard as the best people on MSNBC, like Lawrence O'Donnell or Rachel Maddow or Chris Matthews, who still thinks that Lee Oswald shot JFK and and 19 Islamic terrorists (laughs) attacked us on 9-11. I mean, it's unbelievable. So there are signs that the public is turning to the alternative media as a more reliable news source. That's a number one, very, very important. There are also signs that the uh, establishment is terribly, terribly worried that Trump's cracking down on pedophile network and just Sessions is the instrument to do it. And I think Trump is being getting better at exposing Comey and uh, Mueller are instruments of the state. Mueller has been engaged in cover-ups beginning to end Comey. Uh, it appears, and uh, I mentioned this latest story, which I haven't fully absorbed myself, that he all along had the whole treasure trove of Hillary's emails. I mean, these are people who are involved in covering up. So that Trump's battles with the establishment, as awkward as they may seem, actually appear to be well-founded. And I've yet to find a case where they faulted Trump where Trump wasn't right and the mainstream media wrong. And that includes whether you're talking about the attendance or, uh, at the inauguration or whether uh, Raphael Cruz was with Lee Oswald on the and on the fringe of the JFK assassination, whether there was voter fraud during the election. I, I have had shows where I went through, you know, six or eight of these things where Trump's been Obama not being born in the United States. Look, I, I've gone through all of these and uh, Trump was right or basically right, and if he was wrong, it was only marginally or to a degree, and where the mainstream has just wholesale attacked him, that doesn't mean I'm I'm as strong a partisan as I was in the beginning with Trump, because I'm very worried about foreign policy in relation to the Middle East. I really do want better relations with Russia, and uh, I'm worried that some of his appointees like Mad Dog Mattis to the Department of Defense may be resurrecting old Cold War attitudes. But believe me, no reasonable person could have voted for Hillary Clinton, who may be the most corrupt candidate to ever run for the presidency in our history. She was clearly corrupt. Yeah, it was insane. overwhelming. And we, you know, I get, that would be a whole nother show. But I want to thank yes. you. Thank you for featuring me again. And I'll be delighted to come back. Oh, yes, there will be another as you know, Jim, I am a big fan and a big supporter of yours, and we'll definitely do this again very, very soon. I'm delighted. Yeah. Awesome, Jim. Well, once again, thank you so much for being here, and we'll touch base in the very near future. My great pleasure. Thanks right. a lot. Take care and good night, and God bless. Good night. Bye-bye. And that was my guest, Jim Fetzer. Great, great guest. If you are listening to this on a replay, keep in mind you can listen every Saturday night at 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. That's 11 p.m. Eastern Time, live on the TuneIn Radio app. If you enjoy this program and want to help keep the program expanding, go to michaeldeacon.com. I profoundly appreciate it. Also, this program completely depends on its listeners. That means you sitting there listening. Be a friend and share the show. I'll be returning next Saturday night at 8 p.m. 
with Dr. Richard Allen Miller. I'm Michael Deacon. Thank you for listening. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night, everybody. I could tell that all the mainstream media outlets were giving me like bullshit. Like, you can just see it. It's clear. <laughs> appropriate. I wish I could be in that ring with Holden right now. It's crazy. I had no idea they should exist before 726. I'm going to keep you real. A lot of good content. A lot of of cool topics. You know, I I feel, you know, fortunate to have an opportunity to speak to you guys tonight. You guys are are really big. Yeah, Mr. Bruce That son of a bitch. I I like that, man. It's the simplest shit. You go in there, you see the butt and then you say, what the fuck do you have in your pocket? What the fuck are you going to be smoking tonight about midnight? That's what I want. Just have to tell you both the most incredibly well-rounded. Introducing the greatest tag team on the radio. Guess what, motherfucker? Successfully. Flawless victory.